good evening, ghouls and fiends. And welcome once again to another edition of the Ministry of Horror, coming to you live on Twitch. Or, of course, if you're listening to this later on on the audio uh, platforms, currently only on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, um, hello, welcome, welcome to the show. I will look at doing some alternate um, podcast feeds. I don't really know what other ones people use. I know there's plenty of other ones, but I probably do need to spend a little bit of time <laughs> actually having a look at that um i want to give a shout out obviously if you're watching this live appreciate that but i want to give a shout out to the audio platform uh listeners um, in the last uh, week or so podcast listens on the ministry of horror feed uh kind of shot up out of nowhere um which is very very cool to see very humbling to see so you know i, I appreciate you if you're listening to the show if you're uh you know if you're finding enjoyment listening to me ramble on about horror uh appreciate that i will look to get some some guests back on the show in the new in the new format uh i mean format's kind of the same as it was but uh now it's just me rambling on uh every other week as opposed to every week um but hopefully Hopefully that brings you some level of enjoyment. Um, how's everyone's weeks been the last two weeks since the last show? Um, I'd be interested to hear how many more people have watched Skinamarink, which hadn't seen it uh, at the point of the previous episode going out. Um, I gave it a 5.5 5. 5 out of 10. Um... I'm not going to adjust that score. I will. I will basically just say, you know, if you if you have a a penchant uh, for experimental cinema, art house experimental, you want to watch something very different, give it a go. By all means, give it a go and ensure you watch it via legal means, as you should with all films. Really, you know, support the industry. Uh, these films can't get made if people don't watch them the the legit way. And when you do watch them the legit way, the filmmakers still get bugger all coin out of it anyway um <laughs> but you know su support the arts is the main thing um yeah that was the main sort of discussion point of last week kind of it was the main review uh with this week i i'd look to see if i could get a few more films watched uh we've got a couple of reviews i'd hoped to be able to watch the outwaters that's the other independent horror film that's been making some waves <laughs> get it i don't have a badum i've got i've got that sound effect instead so that's my version of going badum <laughs> but yeah the out the outwaters is uh it's getting some some hype uh again it does seem to be polarizing but maybe not so much to the same extent extent as skinnamarink was uh, I don't know when the UK release for the Outwaters is coming. It has dropped on Screenbox today, which we don't get in the UK. But if you do get Screenbox uh, in the US or what other other territories it's in, maybe Canada, uh, give it a watch. Um, hopefully you enjoy it. I will, I'm looking forward to giving it a, a watch. The trailer, which I saw about a month back, was pretty creepy. But then again, the Skin and Marink trailer was kind of creepy, and that was... Not for me. That's all I'll say. It wasn't for me. Um, other than that, yeah, I, I got a couple of films to watch, which we'll be reviewing later on. I've been reading quite a bit. Um, Christ, what is the name of the book that I've been reading? 
Uh, this is why I should have things to hand. I did think, should I bring, um, should I bring it into my office so I can chat about it? Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez. Uh, I think it's originally in Spanish, I think. Um, but it's then been translated to English. Very good so far. It's quite a, it's a big boy. It's a big book. Um, oh, for fuck's sake. Wait a second. So just looking on Amazon. Uh, apologies, podcast listeners. You're probably thinking, what the hell are you going on about? Um, just looking on Amazon. So today I had out for delivery from Amazon. My poor wallet is, is crying at the moment because it's a week before payday. I'd ordered uh, Berserk, the Dulux edition, volume three. And um, I had seen last night, and I was surprised, and I couldn't help myself. There was an amazing-looking hardback collection of the Lord of the Rings, you know, the the three books, but in a hardback collection with illustrations. And you know, I I had the Hobbit growing up, a hardback edition of that with illustrations that my my poor mum got me, bless her. Um, so I ordered it anyway. Long story short, I was out today. Went to the gym, then went to do a food shop, went to get my car washed. When I was in the car wash, my phone goes, and it was the Ring doorbell, the app for my Ring doorbell. Um, so I, um, I, I start trying to open the app. Typically, signal whatever, the app takes flipping forever to open. By that point, no one's at the door anymore. And then I'm getting notifications from Amazon saying, sorry, there's a problem with the delivery. We'll have to rearrange it. A text message suddenly pops up then from Amazon saying, oh, there's been an issue. Um, the driver is wondering, is anyone home? And I'll quickly message back saying, just leave it by the front door. Because that's literally what they always do. It's books at the end of the day. It's not tech. I mean, it's still, but, you know, it's still an item I've ordered. And I have had protein powder stolen from my front door before but i'm like it's fucking books just buy you don't need me there to sign for it or anything they're not like stupidly high value or anything it's not like thousands of pounds worth of collector's editions it's fucking books from amazon so they go oh, we'll have to try again tomorrow and i'm like I wanted to look at the pretty new books <laughs> um but i've just when i've gone onto amazon to find the title of that book i'm currently reading our share of night it says out for delivery Still arriving today by 10 p.m., which I find incredibly hard to believe um, on account of it is a Saturday night. Um, that can't be right. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm not going to get too sidetracked by this, but it said, you know, 1.15, first delivery attempt, another attempt will be made on the next delivery day. Okay, fine, right, I'll get that. 7.42, package arrived at the final delivery station which is like, you know, an hour or so away. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not going to go back out. Surely not. But it says, out for delivery, still arriving today by 10. So if I suddenly have to jump up, it's because my goddamn front door is gone and my books are here. So I do apologise. Incredibly unprofessional for a podcast. Uh, but I want to look at my pretty books. It won't stop the podcast, don't worry. But if my door goes, this guy just... If it's the same delivery driver, he does not wait around. Um, anyway, that is me going off on such a tangent. Um, welcome to the show in the live chat. We've got Fran the Cannon and we've got the Gruff. Hey guys, how's it going? How's your week's been? How's your horror time been since the last show? Um, Fran says, have I seen the trailer for Sick by Kevin Williamson? Yes. 
Yes, that has been available on platforms. I think you can purchase it. I don't think it's available for free streaming in the UK yet. I don't think we're getting a, U... a cinema release. I think it's a Peacock film, quite possibly. But uh, but yes, Sick by Kevin Williamson is apparently very good. Um, I've heard good things about it. And Kevin Williamson, I've, I've recently been uh, returning to the following, rewatching the following on Freevee. I'd forgotten how good it was. I, I remember, I remember by the third season, it wasn't. It was getting a little bit outlandish, a little bit outlandish, but it was still decent. I think they'd introduced this actor that I was at that period. I always saw in projects, and I always thought he's not actually a very good actor. Why does he keep getting booked for work? Michael Ely or something? Not too sure. Not too sure. Um, but anyway. That's kind of my, my catch-up is my trials and tribulations with uh, Amazon not leaving a delivery at my at my flat. Let's get on with some news, shall we? Um, and before I go into the news, if I haven't already mentioned it, because I think I've just been rambling about Amazon, uh, today our main discussion, we do have a featured presentation, is we are going to talk about the Dead series of films by the late, great George A. Romero. I pontificated on if I was going to do a show on George A. Romero because I have previously done a show on uh, an actor, not an actor, a director who I've seen a lot of their work, uh, John Carpenter. Another director I've seen a fair amount of their work, um, Wes Craven, who I have noticed one of his early films that I've not seen, or early-ish films, well, his 80s heyday, let's just say, um, Deadly Blessings is on Freevee. So if people have Freevee, it's a free service. Um check that out i need to watch it i've added it to my watch list and i've done another look at a director who's i've not actually seen that many of their works um but i've seen enough of the big hitters and i focused on the big hitters which was uh david cronenberg so i had thought okay well do i do shows in the near future on george romero george a. romero or toby hooper um or or look you know at kind of other directors known in the horror realm i mean I've, I've looked at ari aster before and he's only had two features at um at the current moment so i think maybe i think maybe if we get to toby hooper i will need to watch more toby hooper films um i have i have found with toby hooper and this may sound sacrilege that outside of texas chancellor one and two a degree two and poltergeist but you know there's always those you know, steven spielberg comments and podcasts that i'm not I'm not really that big of a fan of Toby Hooper outside of those those main big hitters. Out of the stuff I've seen, to be fair. So that might be a contentious show if we if we do that. But maybe we'll do that in uh, in March or April because the 4K release of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 40th anniversary is coming out. I'm kind of uh, trepidatious about watching it. I mean, the box set looks incredible. I think it's an hour release. I'm not entirely sure. But the, the, the release that they are doing for it does look brilliant. And I am a sucker for a nice box set and I still book whatever. Um, that being said, I don't know how much... The thing we've talked briefly before, 4K releases of older films, it either looks incredible, something like Suspiria or Predator, actually, uh, where, they, where they look incredibly up, incredible upscaled, or other films where it kind of looks the same, and you sort of think, I could have just bought a DVD of this. Um, or then the other extreme is a 4K release, and you look at it and go, oh, man, 
It is 4K, but the griminess made everything not look quite so cheap. And I can see, like, people are wearing wigs quite clearly, and I can see the outline of the prosthetics. You know, that kind of, like, you're seeing too much detail. So part of the thing that I love about Texture Mask is the griminess. Will that be lost in the 4K release? I don't know. I think my opinion on that would be based on how much it is at release. I am a bit of a cheapskate. Um, I am a bit of a cheapskate. Uh, so before we move on to the news, uh, let's just have a quick look at what's going on in the live chat. So Groff has said, Deadstream and Cleansing Out and Green Inferno are the horrors he's watched uh, in the last week. Most horror he's watched in a week for years. I love that stuff. Deadstream and Cleansing Hour, big fans of those. Uh, Deadstream, I think think i gave it an award at the end of year awards uh you can check that out in the podcast archives i uh, really enjoyed that one man i really enjoyed that as we've discussed and cleansing hour surprised me i one of the first films that i watched when i got shudder initially and shudder's early exclusives were a real mixed bag real mixed bag <laughs> and that kind of will come into play in a bit later on when we do the reviews they're both shudder exclusive reviews that we'll be looking at um but Cleansing Hour pleasantly surprised me. Um, it's got, you know, Carl uh, Gardner, who's been in recently Smile and Scream 2022, I think in one of the final Destination films. Really good actor in the horror world, uh, making a making a bit of a name for himself in, in that kind of space. Um, and also Green Inferno. Discussed, we discussed that uh, briefly in the Discord. We won't we won't talk about the Discord on this show, <laughs> just because it's been a bit silly recently. Um which is a bit of a shame because on the flip side, we've had some really good discussions on books and uh, and pop culture. So you've got to take the rough with the smooth. Um, but Green Inferno, I, it's, it's for me, it's a bit of a typical Eli Roth film in that it's got some really great moments, incredible kind of gore, and I'm not a big gore, gore head. I, I, you know, if it's done well and if it serves the film, great. Some cool moments in that. And I do think it's generally a decent film, but then there's just these typical Eli Roth moments where tonally it goes all over the place and it really took me out of it so yeah Green Inferno cool moments but the other bits always bring it down to like a 5 or a 6 out of 10 for me that sort of it's a shame it's a shame because Eli Roth does have some talent um, of course um, Carol Ann who's the Gruff's uh, the Gruff's other half couldn't stomach Green Inferno not surprised it's it's an acquired taste um uh, <laughs> And then Fran finally watched Rob Zombie's 31 last weekend and started 1408. Uh, okay, Fran, you will have to let me know in the chat. I'll get onto the news, but let me know in the chat what you thought of 31. Uh, I remember 1408 being a, being a decent Stephen King adaptation, John Cusack um, in that. But yeah, let me know what you thought about 31. I have my opinions. Uh, my opinions on that one. <laughs> so... Without further ado, let's have a look at the news. What's my news music? This is God. Yeah, that'll do for news music. Okay, so let's first off look at the new releases that have come out this week. Um, this, as per all the news, so I'll just say this once at the top of the thing to give uh, to give the credit out. This comes from bloodydisgusting.com. So, these are the releases that have occurred throughout this week. So some of them will already be out or may, they might all be out actually I think these all were released on Valentine's Day there you go lucky lucky people so first up um, from Takeshi Shimizu Shimizu the visionary creator of the Grudge franchise comes brand new supernatural horror film Ox Head Village 
which is now streaming on Screenbox. In the film, uh, after watching a viral video, a woman, who believes that she's the twin of one of the participants, decides to investigate the town where the video was shot. A Screenbox original, Oxhead Village, screened at numerous international festivals, including the New York Asian Film Festival and Fantas Fantaspoa Film Festival. Uh, Koki, Riku Hagiga Hagiwara, um, and Haruki Imau star. The film presents a sinister mystery with a supernatural twist. Does sound intriguing. Unfortunately, on the site, the trailer is not available in the UK to watch. On their link, I mean, you could probably YouTube it or Google it, but on the on the link that's in the uh, the uh, site that I'm reading from, can't watch it. So I'm not seeing that trailer, but the premise sounds pretty interesting. It does sound good. Next up, director Carter Smith, who did The Ruins, which is pretty decent, is back with Swallowed, a slimy, wild, queer horror movie that was also released on digital and VOD outlets on February 14th. Um, and that blurb is what I'm reading verbatim from the site, not not me being, you know, throwing out terms. Um, in the film from Momentum Pictures, after a drug run goes bad, two friends must survive a nightmarish ordeal of drugs, bugs, and horrific intimacy in this body horror thriller. Jenna Malone, who featured in The Ruins and Neon Demon, Mark Patton uh, of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Cooper Koch of Blumhouse's They Them and debuting talent uh, Jose, Jose Colon star. Uh, yeah, not seen the trailer for that. Yeah, there you go. That's another new film coming out. Uh, now, this is one that I... Crazily enough, I've still not got around to watching the trailer. I think it's because I want to go into watching it Fairly blind, because I am intrigued. So Brandon Cronenberg, who directed Antiviral, funny enough, I still haven't actually watched, and Possessor, which I loved. His new movie, Infinity Pool, was released exclusively in theatres, courtesy of Neon, last month. Um, but where can you watch the film at home? As a surprise Valentine's Day treat, Neon has put Infinity Pool up for grabs at home today. The film is now available for digital purchase and outlets, including Amazon, for $14.99. Mia Goth uh, stars alongside Alexander Skarsgård. Now, there is a blurb here. If you wish to go you know, on Google or Blood Disgusting and look up that blurb, then you may. I'm choosing to scroll past it because... I watched Possessor not knowing a great deal about it, and I was fully engaged. I went along with for the ride. It really... I was really engaged with that film. So I kind of want to watch Infinity Pool knowing as little as possible. So for selfish reasons, I'm not going to discuss the blurb for Infinity Pool. <laughs> um, look it up yourself if you wish. But it's a new Brandon Cronenberg film, and uh, it does have me intrigued. Uh, he is a name for me that is kind of becoming in line with an Ari Aster or a Ty West in terms of these newer, modern era horror filmmakers um, creating unique pictures or having a unique eye for things. Um, yeah. Interesting, interesting. But there's a trailer which you can watch it, and there's imagery, and the imagery itself just looks creepy as anything. Uh, next up, it's set to be, or it was set to be, an insanely bloody Valentine's Day this year. So I hope people did enjoy Valentine's Day. If you celebrate it, or if you uh, have uh, have had loved ones and wanted to enjoy it with your loved ones, or if you wanted to just self care, don't turn that in a dodgy way. <laughs> self care yourself. <laughs> um, 
you do you uh but yeah valentine's day recently um so it's been an insanely bloody valentine's day this year with well go usa unleashing the ultraviolet project wolf hunting which i think we discussed on uh, on the prior show but that is now out on digital blu-ray and dvd as of february 14th project wolf hunting which dread central hailed as one of the goriest films that they're getting this year will also be available on Screenbox and hiya subscribers exclusively to stream beginning may 15th 2023 the film's explosively fun a high octane beast of a splatterfest that's jam-packed with midnight chaos from broken bones to exploding heads i uh, yeah i did watch the trailer for this one a little while back it does look crazy um it's definitely one i'm going to keep an eye out for it it just makes me think why can't we have screenbox in the uk what is stopping them putting screenbox in the uk it's probably licensing as I think that's one of the things that kind of just holds a number of things back, like Joe Bob Briggs's last drive-in. We don't get any of the new shows of that anymore, and more often than not, the ones that do come across now are just the just the talking, so not the films as well. I, I imagine that's a licensing thing for different territories, but it's still pain pain in the ass. Next up, we've got a couple more new films to discuss: the South by Southwest genre-bending Jethica premiered at Cinedigum's indie discovery platform, Fandor, uh, which will be followed by an exclusive window in Cinedigum's horror streaming service, Screenbox, which we don't get in the UK. <laughs> Variety hailed Jethica as an ingenious deadpan horror satire. In the film, Jessica lives in fear of a man named Kevin who follows her everywhere she goes. While on a road trip in New Mexico, she reconnects with Eleanor, an old friend she hasn't seen since high school, who has been hiding out at a deceased grandmother's ranch. When Kevin mysteriously appears again, Jessica and Eleanor seek help from beyond the grave to get rid of him for good. But Kevin is different from other stalkers and won't move on so easily. Now, this has been well received by critics and audiences. It's got a 93% rating on Rotten Tomato. Ooh. Okay, and there's 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 a fair bit of praise then kind of following on from this, but uh, the film stars Callie Hernandez, who was in Under the Silver Lake, not familiar with that one, uh, Ashley Denise Robbins, Robinson, of The Beta Test, not seen that, Andy Faulkner of Youngstown, not seen that, and Will Madden, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, who plays Kevin, not seen that, but he plays Kevin. There, you go. Uh, there is a trailer. Feel free to check it out. And then lastly, The Beast is back in Medusa's Venom, the follow-up to the recent snake horror movie, Medusa. I'm not aware of that. Um, and it's just been unleashed uh, on the 14th across the US and Canada on digital outlets. Medusa's Venom tells the story of newcomer Lola, who is welcomed into Medusa's circle and endures a powerful ritual that will bring her closer to her new sisters. However, what awaits is more influential and dangerous than she ever imagined, awakening the serpent within her. Uh, Becca Hirani, Rise of Loch Ness and It Came From Below. Uh, Mary Kelly, Dark Portal, Alien Invasion, Sky Monster. Connor Powell's The Lost Island. And Ella Starbuck, As Strangers Angels Star. I've not seen any of those projects. <laughs> Just makes it sound like I don't watch much horror. Uh, this was directed by Chase Martins and written by Craig McLeary. Medusa's Venom was co-produced by Jagged Edge Productions and Proportion Productions. So there we go. That's it for the new films. Uh, looking at the live chat, 
Uh, Frank Cannon, talking about 31. I thought it was pretty mid. The majority of the killers were pretty tacky rather than shocking to me. But I did actually like most of the victims. Visually, the setting was pretty interesting, and the highlighted um, of the whole thing was Richard Brakes. Not the biggest guy, but intense and a huge on-screen presence. Yeah, Richard Brakes was the standout for me in that film. Um, yeah, it was... I think tacky is a kind of a correct word for a fair a fair chunk of it. I, I th maybe I need to rewatch it, but um, as we we discussed on one of the earlier shows, the Rob Zombie show, um, my kind of viewpoint on it was I was kind of hitting that zombie fatigue of okay, you know, sassy language constantly throughout. We're getting the same sort of players from film to film, which isn't a new concept, having, you know, working with the same cast quite often. I mean, that this is not even just bringing into his 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 wife into it. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was becoming a bit like, I'm kind of watching these because I want to, I want to like them, but I'm not really enjoying them like I did. House of Thousand Corpses, which is not really an enjoyable film, but it's a very unique film, and then Devil's Rejects, which I thought was is pretty damn good. Uh, that was kind of his 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 high point for me. But yeah, thirty one. I went into it with no real high expectations. I thought it was yeah, it's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say of Rob Zombie, if you like Devil's Rejects and House of Thousand Corpses, Free from Hell is. Okay, I mean it's better than his kind of his recentish output, but it's a, it's quite an unnecessary sequel in terms of fitting in with that chronology. It is a bit unnecessary, but it's 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 you know it's shot well, it's shot it's more cohesive I think than something like Thirty One. Um, so let's look at some other news for the week. Now we talked earlier on about the Outwaters. It is now out on VOD and streaming on Screenbox. I'm pretty sure this is America specific. Um, so we all die in the dark. Reminiscent of early found footage like the Blair Witch Project, with an injection of Event Horizon and Gaspar Noé's Hellish Into the Void, the Outwaters, which opened in theatres this past weekend, has been described by many as what it must be like to experience death. Okay. Critics loved it. Audiences were divided, and now Screenbox subscribers will be able to judge for themselves now that the Outwaters has arrived on the blood-disgusting-powered streaming platform as well as all VOD platforms. Well, let's test that. Do we get it on Amazon? The Outwaters. Um, let's look at Prime Video. No, there are Outwater skirting boards, PVC mouldings. No. Uh, so, UK... As per usual, we are left behind uh, a bit. But it's an intriguing-looking film. The trailer is definitely one that is worth watching. But, uh, but yeah, as as mentioned at the top of the show, it says here that it's it's divided audiences. Um, further on, it says, Love it or hate it, we here at Bud Disgusting are extremely proud of Robbie Banfitch's film, which we like to call Anti-Cinema. Ambiguous, dangerous, and brutally unapologetic, The Outwaters is different in a sea of the same. We hope that you'll turn off the lights, jack up the volume, and allow yourself to sink into the experience that's nothing short of nerve shredding. 
Uh, the Outwaters follows a foursome who set out to make a music video in the middle of the desert, and while their trip starts out uneventful, their peace is eventually disrupted by unexplained sounds, vibrations, and unnatural animal behaviour. What happens next is a mind-bending trip through terror that is nothing short of disorientating and absolutely frightening. So, those descriptions do kind of temper my expectations. I mean, like I say, you know, I... I thought the trailer for Skin and Marink was intriguing. It wasn't, the film wasn't really for me. I thought the trailer for The Outwaters does look intriguing, but I have heard the mixed reception, so again, I'm kind of tempering expectation and thinking, let's not go in there hearing all this hype that, you know, I mean, one of the blurbs for the film is believe the hype. You know, the hype is real. Um, terrifying. Um, suffocating viewing experience. But when it says things like it's anti-cinema and... As Bericles in the live chat says, isn't that just photos? Uh, maybe. I mean, Skinnerink was basically just photos. <laughs> um, you know, amb ambiguous, dangerous, brutally unapologetic. I mean, ambiguous, ambiguous when done well, like something like David Lynch, in my opinion, can work. I don't need to know all the answers. I don't need to have my hand held. But sometimes ambiguous is almost random for the sake of it, potentially. Depends. Depends in, in whose hands that it's it's being handled and what approach is taken, what kind of vision is taken with, with the project. I'm intrigued, though. I am intrigued in watching this. But the, the Outwaters, if you're in America, you're lucky sods. It's now out on VOD and streaming. Uh, we've got a few more little things to discuss. So Eli Roth, who we've talked about briefly, when we talked about uh, Green Inferno, is in the news again. Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. Patrick Dempsey is in talks to star in the throwback slasher film. So if anyone watched way back in 2007, there was a double feature release project called Grindhouse by Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. They'd both created these two films in the style of the classic Grindhouse cinema films from the 70s and you know maybe early 80s. Grimy, over-the-top, um, grimy, sexy, over-the-top, gory horror films that you'd see, you know, for a couple of dollars at these cinemas. And they'd normally be like a double feature. It's a very American thing. We didn't really fully, to my knowledge, have that concept over here. I mean, you see 70s America in the cinema and it looks all, like, sassy and cool and stuff. You see 70s England and it's all, like, mining and depressing-looking. <laughs> um... But uh, they would have these features, and then as a double feature, you'd kind of have like an intermission, but you'd have these trailers for other films coming up. So a whole bunch of these filmmakers made fake trailers. Rob Zombie made SS uh, Were Werewolves of the SS, or SS Werewolves, something like that, which was a pretty cool trailer. It had um, Nicolas Cage's Fu Manchu in it. Uh, Edgar Wright did, uh, did one. I can't remember what it was called, if it was like Shush or something like that, or Stop. That was pretty interesting. Machete, as Fran the Can says in the in the chat, she's uh, is is correct. Machete started as a fake trailer, I believe. Even Hobo with a Shotgun um, was either a, a fake trailer or was inspired by a fake trailer. That was made into a feature starring the late Rudger Hur, and that's a very entertaining Grindhouse film. Um, it really encompasses the Grindhouse feature, and uh, and yes, Machete was Machete was definitely one of them, but also Eli Roth did one called Thanksgiving, which is very very cool little little short taking the tropes of having a holiday themed slasher 
But announced last month, Eli Roth is finally getting behind the camera for a feature version of Thanksgiving, the popular faux trailer he directed for Grindhouse back in 2007. Deadline updates on the project today, uh, reporting that Patrick Dempsey is now in talks to star in the feature-length adaptation of the once-fake throwback slasher movie. Shooting will begin in March with a script by Jeff Rendell, with Spyglass behind the film. So, uh, you can probably find on on Google, on YouTube, the trailer, the, folk, the fake trailer. I mean, one of the moments has a turkey with someone's head sticking out of it and their mouth stuffed with all the all the trimmings it was it was really it was really unique and interesting i mean the whole grindhouse project was a lot of fun but i really flip-flop between the films that i prefer i always used to prefer planet terror uh the, the robert rodriguez one it had um uh, michael ben in it from aliens and terminator he was really cool um one of those little kind of heroes back in the day uh rose mcgowan not rose mcgowan yeah, Rose McGowan. She was she's badass in that. She had a uh, she loses a leg and has a gun leg replacing it. It was very very cool, but it really fit that kind of aesthetic and it went boost the walls. But then, um, Death Proof, Quentin Tarantino's feature. First time watched it, didn't really like it. It was it felt overly indulgent Tarantino because there's this opening monologue and it seems to go on for fucking ever. But to put it frankly, um. And, you know, with a Tarantino film, you do have these long kind of monologue periods. That's kind of a hallmark of, of his. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, it is worth sticking through with it because you get some manic performances, including um, Kurt Russell. Really cool set piece um, stunt work with, I think, Zoe Bell, a professional stunt woman who appeared in that. Um, it's, it's a cool film. I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I think Planet Terror does usually pip it for me, but... Um, but Death Proof is fun. Uh, Barricles, I think it was inspired, and it was awesome. And uh, found the can in the chat. I think I still prefer Planet Terror over Death Proof slightly. Yeah, it was really, really fun. Uh, really fun sort of double feature. But uh, Patrick Dempsey, who from the looks of this is from Grey's Anatomy, never seen it. Uh, he is in talks to star in the slasher. So that is something to look out for, definitely. Uh, we got. Da, 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 da. Okay, yeah, we've got a couple of bits. We've got some gaming news now before we move on to the reviews. Uh, Fear Demics Remorse the List arrives on Xbox Series and Switch February 23rd. Uh, there is a trailer online. Looks pretty spooky, I'll be honest. Uh, and the first imagery shows like what, what looks to be. Uh, an asylum or a hospital with the walls splattered and caked in blood. Just your typical, your typical lovely, you know, you want to play some Animal Crossing, you want to follow that up with some remorse to the list, you know, it's, they're, they're basically one and the same. Stardew Valley, Harvest Moon, remorse the list. <laughs> After being previewed as part of Fear Demic's 2023 release slate, Ashkandi and Truth Key's Remorse The List are coming to the Xbox Series and Nintendo Switch next week. The game first hit PC via Steam last April and will now see a console release on February 23rd. Now, I'm not aware of this, and I do often have a look through Steam for horror games. Because I think it'd be, it's good content to try and stream with. You know, I mean, I'm not a huge, huge horror game person because I'm a bit of a pussy when it comes to games. Um... 
but uh, whenever I do look for a new horror game or horror games on Steam, it's always 4v1 or four-player asymmetrical horror ones, multiplayer-focused. I thought, I've got no interest in that. I want a good narrative. All these, you know, two-hour just jump-scare games. Not interested. Not interested. Doesn't do it for me. Or retro-styled games, which I'm a bit of a graphics snob. I can't help it. If I go to play a game, unless the gameplay is insanely good or engaging, then I will look at it and go, mm, graphics look kind of shitty. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm not aware of this, but apparently it's been on Steam since last April. So inspired by the classics of the survival horror genre, Remorse, the list, sees players explore the creepy dark suburbs of the Hungarian town Hidegsputza where strange, something strange is going on. Your only clue is a list that doesn't make much sense either. Exploring everywhere in Hidegputsta will put the key to un unveiling its secrets and getting out alive. The game's in-depth story unfolds through videotapes and voice recordings you'll discover throughout the town. Sounds a little bit outlasty, and I was shite at the Outlast games. Just, you know, <laughs> absolutely shite at them. Give me a gun or something so I can defend myself. <laughs> otherwise i will just hide the entire time uh, keeping up with this inspiration of classic survival horror games you'll have limited options when it comes to defending yourself from whatever it is that lurks in the shadows of this town you also have to manage your resources carefully with the limited inventory space you have and take advantage of everything at your disposal in order to keep going also features open-ended gameplay where the where you decide the order in which you unfold the sequence of the list okay so that's kind of a bit like um that Slenderman game, The Lost Pages, from way back when. Yeah, I mean, I might try it. Those open-ended ones where you can't really defend yourself and you have to hide. Uh, you know, too jumpy for me. Too jumpy for me. Uh, in the live chat, Gruff, have you finished Dead Space? No, I've um, I've not done much gaming in the last week, uh, but it is still on my agenda. Callista Protocol, um, I have, I've, I've traded it in at CEX. Because I just thought, I just can't get on with the combat. Not for me. Not for me. Dead Space. Dead Space, a lot scarier, in my opinion. <laughs> Which sounds like a real pussy thing to say, but it's just, it's freaky. It's very good. I'd forgotten how, how great the original game is, but now with, you know, 4K graphics, it's insane. And the combat, I much prefer the combat. Um, yeah, I couldn't get on with Callista Protocol. I did try it again, but couldn't get on with it um and then the gruff um oh and i watched eden lake this week it took me a while to get into it but i enjoyed it bloody dark ending though yeah eden lake if anyone hasn't seen it it's definitely a powerful horror film that you should watch at least once but it's one of those films that you're probably not going to watch again because it is so dark um when i, I saw it around probably probably when it came to home video. I don't think it had a huge cinema release in the UK. Uh, but I saw it around release time, and it really did encapsulate that kind of ASBO, uh, antisocial behavioural order um, feeling that was going on in the UK at the time, um, of just, you know, hoodies, yobbos, chavs, violence... There's a lot of cases, I mean, it probably still happens, probably never gotten embarrassed, probably got worse, I don't know. But there were particular cases at that time, there was the, um, the I can't remember the exact names, so apologies, but there was the other uh, the couple 
and the goth culture and the girl Sophie Lancaster, I think, um, who was uh, attacked upon by chavs, goodies, um, and, and murdered. And there was just a lot of this kind of antisocial behavior, uh, behavior, you know, like fathers confronting yobbos and then getting beaten to death for it, you know. There was a lot of fear of that in the world. So when this film came out and I saw it, it really did kind of hit on those uh, societal fears. And these, the, I mean, the acting in it is brilliant. I think Jack O'Connell is, uh, is one of the chavs. Uh, Thomas... Tegusen, I think his name is, um, who is in This Is England. He's another one, but a bit more sympathetic. And Michael Fassbender. I can't remember the woman's name in it, but she's, she's excellent and she's gorgeous. Um, performances all around are brilliant, but it's such a dark film. Um, such a dark film. <laughs> and the gruff in the chat says, it's just an ordinary day in Ke Gillingham, Kent. Bloody hell, no. I, I'm a big lad. I lift weights. I can take care of myself. I'm not confrontational. I'm not confrontational. So see those sort of interactions, and I mean, you give give me horror films with gore, spooks, jump scares. Sure, it'll get a reaction out of me. It certainly will. But when you get these really in a good thriller or something like Eden Lake, these confrontational moments are just so uncomfortable, even before leading up to the violence. They're the moments where I'm just like, ah, nah, get me out of here. <laughs> no thanks. No thank you. Um, but yeah, that that is now on Shudder in the UK. So if you haven't seen Eden Lake, give it a watch, but don't expect Sunshine and Roses, is all I'll say. So two more little bits of horror news, and then we'll move on to the reviews. So for people who don't like creepy crawlies, specifically arachnids, Sting. First look at arachnophobia horror movie featuring practical spider effects from Weta, W-E-T-A. But disgusting has learned that the production has wrapped in Sydney, Australia. Well, if you're going to have spiders, go to go to Australia. Um, on Kaya Roach Turner's Sting, inspired by one of humanity's greatest fears, spiders. Um, the film stars Ryan Core, who's in House of the Dragon. I don't know who that is in that. Um, Alia Brown... Uh, Penelope Mitchell, Robin Nevin, Noni Hazelhurst, and Jermaine Fowler. One called Stormy Night in New York City, a mysterious object falls from the sky and smashes through the window of a run-down apartment building. It's an egg, and from this egg emerges a strange little spider. The creature is discovered by Charlotte, a rebellious 12-year-old girl obsessed with comic books, Despite her stepfather Ethan's best efforts to connect with her through their comic book co-creation Fangirl, Charlotte feels isolated. Her mother and Ethan are distracted by their new baby and are struggling to cope, leaving Charlotte to bond with the spider. Keeping it as a secret pet, she names it Sting. There's a huge amount of blurb here, which it feels like it's one of those blurbs that gives away 60% of the story. Um... Yeah, I won't read any more than that, but uh, it says that, so there's, I'll see further on, it says, hunted by a ravenous, super-sized arachnid with a taste for human flesh. Now, I've never liked spiders. But funnily enough, I haven't seen a scary film with spiders in it. Like, arachnophobia has its moments, but it's one of those kind of Amblin, I don't know if it is an Amblin release, but it's got that tone of, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek to an extent like a lot of the spiders in that are just kind of quite small and then the big one at near the end 
you never really see that much of it other than these over-the-top close-ups. And there was one film I remember seeing, I think it's just called Spider or Arachnid or something, set in, like, the Amazonian rainforest with an enormous spider that, like, has uh, flesh flesh melting venom spit um and yeah again it's just kind of a bit over the top um yeah i mean i don't know and then there's a recent film called itsy bitsy which i remember seeing the trailer and thinking that looks like it could be quite creepy but then reading the blurb it was like it's not a spider it's like an old demigod or something i thought what the fuck <laughs> so i haven't seen that but i think that is available on on Amazon Prime, maybe, or Shudder, or Freebie. It's definitely available. Uh, Fran Lacan, not sure why people get so scared of spiders, because they look like aliens. They don't look like they should exist. <laughs> I don't mind them so much these days. Like, if I see one, I will still go, get the, get the, get the fuck out of my place. Get the fuck out. Um, but yeah, when I was kind of flipping, hated them. Um... And then, yeah, so I'm going to move on from the spider talk. Finally, one of the films that I did review uh, on the prior show, Megan, m 3 the unrated version, is coming to digital later this month and Blu-ray in March. Uh, released in theatres with a PG-13 rating, uh, both disgusting had been hearing that there's an unrated version of the box office hit Megan was on the way, and indeed it has been officially announced. It arrives on digital February 24th and Blu-ray and DVD March 21st from Universal Pictures Home Entertainment, including the theatrical version and the unrated edition. The unrated cut will also begin streaming on Peacock on February 24th. Writer Akila Cooper had revealed to Los Angeles Times last month that the original rated R incarnation of the film was a bit different. For starters, it was way gorier. No shade to Universal, this is a quote, love them, and I understand that once the trailer went viral, teenagers got involved and you want them to be able to see it, Cooper explained to the outlet. She continued, there should be an unrated version at some point. I heard it is on the books, but yes, it was way gorier. Her body count in the script was higher than in the movie. It wasn't a Gabriel in Malignant scare massacre scale massacre because that is i still need to rewatch malignant but that is ott um but it's very fun uh but she did kill a bunch more people including a couple of characters whom james one was like i like what you did with those people but i want them to live i was merciless but again this is me my humor is extremely dark i'd be intrigued by that because megan while very enjoyable um after watching it, I was like, okay, well, that, that definitely was PG-13. There weren't many kills in it, which I don't think is necessarily a negative. You know, the story should always come first and foremost. Depending on what kind of horror you like, I mean, I'm I'm a cinema fan, kind of first and foremost, so I'll always take a good narrative over a splatterfest. But yeah, it was... There wasn't really any kind of crazy moments, you know. It's, it's quite a fun horror film. Um, but yeah, hearing an unrated version is coming. I'll be intrigued to see like what level we get with that. I've had, I've, I won't mention the title of one of the films cause I've decided not to talk about it anymore this year. Uh, but certainly I remember picking up Halloween kills and, uh, and watching the, un, you know, not unrated edition, but it's like the extended cut or the gory cut or whatever. I mean, it's pretty gory enough as it is, but I remember watching the extended cut and going, hmm, they've added in two little bits of extended conversations, which you can kind of see why they cut, because they're a bit boring, or they're just sort of cut a bit weird. So, 
Yeah, I've seen a few recent kind of extended cuts of films, like home video releases, and kind of gone, yeah. Um, I don't really notice a huge amount of difference, or the scenes that were cut didn't really have much, you know, didn't really add anything to it. Uh, but yeah, if there's a gory version of Megan, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Around the cam in the chat, he means I'm not gonna. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm not gonna repeat that. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, so that is it then from Blood Disgusting. Thank you. Where we get our little news bits and bobs, our little little titbits. Um, so let's now discuss our reviews. Now this is where I need to. I've got too many things open with not enough screens. Uh, <laughs> let's put that there and then let's bring this here. Okay, so the first film that we are going to be discussing, actually, let me just, I really should have prepared this before going live, but hey, if you've listened, if you've watched live Ministry of Horror, you know that my preparation and tech savviness uh, are generally not there. They are. They leave a lot to be desired. I think would be the accurate way to uh, to put it. <laughs> right, move that there. There we go. Just so it's just so I can have chat still open and see what things are going on. Anyway, first film we are going to be talking about for my review is The Layer. This is a new film from Neil Marshall, who fans of UK horror or even much. You know, he's he's gone quite quite large scale. Should know the name. He he did Dog Soldiers, he did Doomsday, which I've still never watched. I've still got it on my to watch list. Um he's done a few projects. We'll have a little look at what other projects he's done. But also he's been quite not notable for uh directing some key episodes of Game of Thrones, done some uh, incredible set pieces in that show. Um so he's He's kind of, you know, hitting all cylinders. Of course, he did The Descent. He did The Descent. And he also did a film called The Reckoning, which I've not seen. Um, Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Doomsday. Uh, I did some episodes of Lost in Space. Didn't watch that. Uh, -da -da -dum. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's done a few things. Oh, they're all producer credits. I just want to see director credits. Reckoning Hellboy, which didn't deserve all the hate it got. I mean, it was a pretty uneventful film, but it wasn't terrible like uh, a lot of the reviews made it out to be. Uh, he did a segment in Tales of Halloween. He's done an episode of Hannibal. He's done uh, a couple of episodes of Constantine. A couple of episodes of Black Sails. A couple of episodes of Game of Thrones. Did Centurion. Not seen that. And then, of course, as I mentioned, The Descent, Dog Soldiers, and Doomsday. So, this is a film that I saw the trailer for when it dropped tail end of last year. And I hate to say it, my initial reaction was, ooh, how the mighty have fallen. The trailer, to me, it gave me mixed feelings because... Here we have a creature feature, you could say a return to the starlings of dog soldiers. Or the descent. But there was also this kind of cheapness there as well. I'm not too sure if it was the actual, if it was some of the close-ups of the creatures, or some of the lighting. 
in 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 the film in the trailer, but my initial reactions weren't brilliant. In all honesty, when I saw the the trailer, but it's yeah directed by Neil Marshall, written by Neil Marshall and uh, and Charlotte Kirk. Charlotte Kirk also stars alongside Jonathan Howard and Jamie Bamber. When Royal Air Force pilot Lieutenant Kate Sinclair is shot down over Afghanistan, she finds refuge in an abandoned underground bunker where deadly man-made biological weapons, half human and half alien, bit of a spoiler there, are awakened. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, She is... the, The story does a very good job, really, of actually encompassing... What are these creatures? Where have they come from? Uh, their their kind of origin, along with further developing a, a, a cast of characters, you know, headed by Charlotte Kirk. Now I don't know which which character it was that. Ah, oh, here we go, Leon Ockenden, uh, playing Sergeant Oswald Jones. Now he almost felt like a caricature. So that essentially, she she goes into this. She, she gets shot down, fighting with these Afghanistan soldiers. Goes into this bunker. They follow her through. There's this weird lab in it. It's a really cool set piece. Very, very, very cool and and dark and grimy. <clears throat> and uh, shit hits the fan, and we we meet this creature. And she, in her escape, ends up. Uh, coming across this army platoon, the I think it's Major Roy Finch, played by Jamie Bamber, has an eye patch. He's lost an eye at some point. Don't know the details of that. Uh, along with this platoon, there of a mixture of characters. One of them is Leon Ockenden's Sergeant Oswald Jones. Who the reason I knew that was him is because he is incredibly Welsh in the film. And this isn't a negative at all. Um, but the kind of the portrayal of uh, of all of the phrases that he said in all of the dialogue would be akin to having a Scottish actor who, out of place, is always wearing a kilt, even though it doesn't fit like the army uniform. It's just, just so you know, this person's Scottish. It was kind of like that with every phrase that he was saying. Just, it was really over the top, and in contrast to the American unit that he was fighting with. Uh, just It just felt a little bit weird. Like, are Welsh people in the American Marines? I don't know. I, I didn't get all the details for the the units and all that stuff. I no, I'm not an army person. I don't know, but I remember just thinking that kind of st- stood out a bit weird. But there's quite an there's quite an engaging story here, um, along with another character, um, Hadi Kwan Jampor plays Kabir Abdul Rahimi. Very, there's a very cool little character that that joins into the cast and builds quite a cool bond with Charlotte Kirk's Captain Kate Sinclair. There is some cool gore in this film. So they've used practical effects for the creation of the monsters. There's very kind of little CGI. There's some CGI for these kind of tentacle things, which it doesn't really go into what the purpose for them is. don't know if you needed to have that discussed or not. Um, but she has the... the a lot of the the a lot of it is practical effects is what I'm getting at, and there's some cool moments. Someone gets their face ripped off fairly early on. There's some really over the top gore, and after about the half hour mark or so into this film, and it's only an hour and a half, I kind of understood. Okay, I see what they're going for with this. I mean, it's the the title on the poster says "From the Director of the Descent," so they're just letting you know. Okay, well, it's, 
expect monsters killing people. Of course, that's what you're getting. But I suppose in terms of the tone, for me, I soon realized, okay, 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 okay. The music is very kind of synthy. The set pieces, the camaraderie and the communication. It's basically aliens, lower scale and budget, of course, aliens slash predator. So think 80s machismo um, action horror. And if you go into watching this with that kind of mindset, you're probably going to have quite a bit of fun. It is quite cheesy at times, but it's never so cheesy that you think, oh, God, this is fucking bad. For me, anyway, I, 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 I actually quite enjoyed it. And I think it's because I thought, okay, don't, it's not a serious film. And when I say that, it's not like jokey jokey, but there are some moments of dialogue that you could look at it and go, Oh God, that was so cheesy. You know, the sort of dialogue that makes your eyes roll. But taking it with that kind of, I don't want to say light-hearted because this isn't a comedy horror. This isn't the other film we're going to be discussing. It's not. There's no comedy in this. But if you take it with that, it's not taking itself super, super seriously. It's definitely got that kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Predator vibe going for it with the dialogue and the communication kind of think of the dialogue from something like SWAT the TV show with Shamar Moore from Criminal Minds in it it's a good action show it's not brilliantly written like the dialogue is so cheesy at times but it's you, you counteract that with some good action set pieces and it's really nicely shot so it works um and find the can in the chat kind of similar to Overlord think Overlord with a bit of a lower budget naturally but also a lot a lot gorier i would say um yeah to an extent but it's very much wearing its 80s action horror heart or influence on its sleeve i feel um and so when i went to watch this i saw that it got like a 4.5 on imdb and i thought mm, okay trailer didn't look great 4.5 <laughs> well let's give it a watch i do like neil marshall's films that i have seen um, you know, obviously bearing in mind I haven't seen Doomsday yet or The Reckoning. So I thought, let's give this a watch. I think it's fun. Yeah, I think it's fun. It's got good gore. It's got a pretty neat story, which works out in, in terms of things aren't really left too loose. It doesn't do the MacGuffin thing of overtly, you know, there's no some sudden appearance of an evil mastermind who goes, ah, this was my plan all along. I did this, I did this. No, 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 no. But it it does enough hand-holding where, you know, they, they will reveal through their investigations and workings pretty much exactly what is going on. So you don't really need to think, oh, okay, but what about this? But what about that, you know? You get the answers, really, I felt. Um, yeah, and it's decent. I think it's decent. I mean, some, someone near the end, you don't see it, but you see the aftermath, gets their, gets half of their head just chomped. It was like something out of Berserk. <laughs> uh, I, I'd give this a 6 out of 10. It's on Shudder at the moment. I think it's... If you just... I would just say temper your expectations. Don't go, oh, it's a new Neil Marshall film. He did The Descent. I love The Descent. It's not that same quality. Um, it, 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 it's just not that kind of same standard. I don't know if this was... 
It certainly does. It certainly is a reduced budget. And that's only really because of certain kind of scenes where you sort of think, mm, this looks like it is a little bit cheaper. Um, but that shouldn't really be a negative. I mean, Crisis was made, I guess production companies are still kind of getting over the whole COVID thing, really hampered cinema and all that malarkey. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give The Lair 6 out of 10. That takes me on to the second and last review before we move on to our main discussion. This is a film with a slightly higher rating on IMDb, but I will not be giving it a slightly higher rating. Spoiler warning for my rating. Uh, this is another Shudder exclusive. You can probably gauge the genre as not out-and-out -out horror from the artwork if you're watching this uh, live, but if you're not and you're catching up on it on... on uh, podcast platforms, audio platforms. I am talking about the recent Shudder exclusive, Sorry About the Demon. This is a 2022 film written and directed by Emily Hagens, starring John Michael Simpson, Jeff McQuin McQuitty, and Olivia Dukayen. A young man, struggling with a broken heart, learns that his new place is full of restless spirits. This is... It's one of those comedy horrors where it's a comedy with a horror setting, really. First and foremost, um, it's got some plaudits saying, you know, one-of-a-kind horror, devilishly fun. But it didn't do it for me. It didn't do it for me. So essentially, uh, the main character, can't remember his name, I only finished watching it. <laughs> Probably about two hours before the show. Uh, he is broken up with his... Well, his girlfriend's broken up with him. He has such a weird job. He works from home, but he is a customer service agent for a toothpaste company, so he gets complaint calls at night. But the pro from working for the company is he gets free lifetime supply of this toothpaste, which apparently tastes disgusting anyway. It's just it's a bit of a hackneyed sort of setup I found, but they break up because she's kind of you know saying there's there's no direction, he has no get up and go, um, and so he has to move out. At the same time, this family who've recently they work in real estate, they've recently bought this house. Uh, they found that a demon has tried to possess possess their young daughter. So panic ensues, and they. The demon basically says, I need a sacrifice. I need a soul. You need to bring me a soul. So they rent out their entire house to this guy uh, for very cheap to be a soul. But quite quickly, the spirit notices that this guy isn't worthy. He's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a loser. His friends are, you know, he, he basically is obsessed with his girlfriend. He wants her back. His friends are just like, well, his one friend is kind of just like, you need to get over that. Look, it's not going to happen. You are a loser, loser, chump face. Now, my issue with the film is it's going for the, the, the vibe of a horror comedy. Now, horror comedy, they're, they're things that they do go together. It always seems like a bit of a juxtaposition to some people because, like, oh, why do you want to be scared, but why do you want to laugh? Not, not to that extent. Not to that extent because with, uh, with horror, 
more often than not, you sometimes you, you do need moments of a bit of comic relief. It doesn't necessarily mean to have to be ha-ha, but sometimes to make the most... Again, it depends on what type of horror film it is. You've got out-and-out -out horror, you've got supernatural, whatever. It really depends on the tone, but it's not out of place to have these moments that lighten the mood slightly so then when it does get more dramatic and horrifying that it's more impactful you know you give the audience a moment for a breather before going blam 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 um but then you also get films which are more out and out horror comedy comedy horror whichever way you want to look at it prime example for me would be Shaun of the dead an excellent example of fitting that right mixture of it's funny it's a comedy that's funny which i think is if you're having a comedy, then it kind of has to be funny. Um, but it also has those great moments of horror as well. And drama and everything. I think, you know, Sean Dead's just, a, just an all-around excellent film. But um, with, with that, I do tend to find that horror comedies are really few and far between in terms of quality. I think most people, most filmmakers with a, a, a like of horror or with an adept hand can make a decent horror film. You know, you don't, horror is one of those genres you don't need much. You don't need a huge budget. You don't need crazy special effects, whatever, you know. You can be very practical and make a great horror film, okay? But with comedy, for a good comedy... It has to be amusing, at least. It has to be funny. Whether that's laugh-out-loud funny, whimsical, humorous, whatever. But it has to elicit those moments of cracking a smile, at the very least. And I do find, and I've seen a few submissions, you know, for when, when I was working predominantly in Vipco, you know, prior to the acquisition, you get some horror comedy submissions, and I'd always find that, okay, I respect what they've gone for. They haven't just gone for out-and-out -out horror you know, which you can see a dime a dozen varying degrees of quality. It takes some guts to try and make comedy horror. But that being said, I've just seem to, I just think it's so much harder to be funny, to make a funny film, if you haven't got a professional comedian in it, or someone with a great comic timing, or you know, the script, you know, it's tightly scripted and the script doesn't have that many jokes in it or humorous moments or humorous situations. So this is very much a dark comedy film with a horror setting and doesn't really kind of land the jokes for me. It's, 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 a, it's a low budget. There's some nice set pieces, but it hasn't got a, a huge budget. There's not that many actors in it. Um, but it is really kind of going for that vibe of like 80s, early 90s, kind of almost family-esque comedy horror. The sort of like, oh, it's a horror film you watch with the family because it's more lighthearted, I guess would be how I'd kind of describe it. Um, Fran in the chat says, Tucker and Dale versus Evil is another good example of comedy horror. Yes, yes, I'd agree with that. Um, but kind of really outside of Tucker and Dale versus Evil, Shaun the Dead, and there's there's obviously a few others. I'm not saying that those two are the the only ones, but I do find that it's, you know, the the comedy element in a horror film 
is much harder to nail than the horror element. I mean, obviously, there's there's terrible horrors, of course. I'm not going to say that, you know, horror's easy. Not at all. But I do find that a good majority of comedy horror films that I come across, you know, not these massive budget productions, you know, all the ones that get widespread releases, a lot of them just don't really kind of land. Um especially if the focus is on the comedy. If you have a comedy horror that does have the good moments of horror but is also the less of the comedy, you can kind of, if the comedy's just not really hitting, you still can if the, if it's got a good story and it's got good moments of horror it can still move it along. There's a film that I had for the horror film festival I did back in the Vipco days called like Sleepwalk Kill and that was a comedy horror and the comedy was and they're not hit, hitting out the park in terms of jokes and whatnot, but in terms of kind of tone. Okay, all right. But they had a good enough story and good moments of horror to keep things ticking along. So it wasn't just, you know, falling over on the comedy, not knocking it out the park every time. Uh, so I won't kind of go off too much more on this. Um, I don't want to shit on it. It's not bad. It's not a badly made film, but it just, for a, a comedy, essentially a comedy film, didn't really raise a smile from me, didn't really make me chuckle. Um, so I kind of think, it's, for my, in my opinion, it's kind of failed in that regard. So I'm going to have to give it a four. Four out of ten. may seem harsh, um, but, it, yeah, I... And it's an hour and 40, which... Or an hour and 45, which, again, is not, not a super long film. It's like a two-hour 20 film or anything. But if it's really kind of struggling to engage me, then, you know, if it's anything more than 90 minutes and I'm not really enjoying it, then I am going to I am gonna struggle. I am going to struggle to remain engaged uh, in that, unfortunately. So that is a 4 out of 10 for Sorry About the Demon. So, gang, it is at that time we are now going to talk about our... Where's my button? Featured presentation. Um, I don't know if it went all wonky on the stream, but it kind of went wonky on my screen there, the featured presentation. Don't know if it actually played properly. <clears throat> but yeah, it kind of froze up on my end. Apologies if that maybe it played fine and i'm just talking nonsense anyway we're talking about the feature presentation i am going to be looking now at the dead series from the modern day maker of the zombie basically kind of created the zombie apocalypse i don't want to say create the zombies there was like white zombie uh i walked the zombie it's been a concept you know from like haiti Haitian culture and probably going back long, long times, longer than I'm aware of. But you think zombie films, you think originators, you've got to kind of think George A. Romero is certainly in the discussion, if not at the top of it. George A. Romero was born February 4th, 1940, unfortunately passed July 16th, 2017, at the age of 77. That's decent, decent innings. Uh, he was an American-Canadian filmmaker, writer, editor and actor. Uh, his Night of the Living Dead series of films about an imagined zombie apocalypse began with the 1968 film of the same name and is often considered a major contributor to the image of the zombie in modern culture. 
Um, he's done he's done other films, obviously, in the terms of the series. There was Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and the later sequels, which we will discuss. But he's also worked on The Crazies, Martin, Knight Riders, Creepshow, Monkey Shines, The Dark Half, and Bruiser. Uh, he also co-created, no, he also created, sorry, and executive produced the television series Tales from the Dark Side from 1983 to 88. Um, he's often been called the father of the zombie film and an icon. Uh, so for me, George Romero, George A. Romero, I think I potentially first became aware of him because I believe he had directed a Japanese or American, we didn't really see it over here unless we could probably find it now on YouTube, but a trailer for the Resident Evil 2 video game, I'm pretty sure. So his name had popped up, and around the time of Resident Evil 2, I would have been single digits still. I'd have been quite young. But my interest in horror was starting to bur- you know, burgeon. I'd seen maybe Halloween on TV. Um, I'd played... I remember my, my mother got me for one of my birthdays a PlayStation 1, PSX. But being thrifty, she'd bought it through the Yellow Pages, which uh, people that don't know, I don't know if it still exists, but it's basically like, a, you know, before the days of just looking up things and Googling and blah, 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 getting phone numbers on Google, you can have a, it's basically a physical book that you could have companies in there to, to call up if you needed a plumber, you needed whatever, all that stuff. It was like a big directory, essentially. But you could also have... It might have been the Yellow Pages. I might be getting two things confused. It was something called free ads, which would be an advertising space. Some people would do free ads for, I guess, dating, or you could do it to sell things or say, you know, looking for jobs, put job adverts in there, whatever. And so someone in Christchurch was uh, an area in the UK had been selling a, a PlayStation with a bunch of games. So rather than going out spending £200, which at that time was a lot of money, it's still a lot of money now, but it was a lot of money then, especially, you know, was, wasn't swimming in coin. Um, she she went and got me a PlayStation, um, and he goes, oh, I can have a selection of a few games. And the reason the PlayStation was cheap was because it was a chipped PlayStation. So I could essentially, because I noticed some of the games came on rewritable discs, basically. And what you could do is you could basically borrow or rent out a game from Blockbusters, put it in your computer's drive, and burn it to a rewritable CD, and it would play on the PlayStation. But also, if you wanted to import games, buy games from, you know, in NTSC formatting, because in the UK it's PAL, uh, NTSC formatting from, like, America or Japan, you could do, and it would play them, whereas normally they'd be region-locked. Long story short... I had Silent Hill with that, along some, you know, other games, like sporty sort of games and stuff. And one of the first... And I think it also came with the original Resident Evil. And one of the first games that I got purchased for me, and I remember saying to, to my parents, it's fine, it's fine. Yes, it says it's a 15 on it or whatever, but it's fine, it's okay, it's just a game, was Resident Evil 2. That's the kind of long roundabout thing of it. And I would occasionally read publications like Games Master Magazine or when I got into a bit of PC gaming, like PC Gamer, you know, whatever. It was like PSX Magazine. And I remember hearing about George Romero directing this famous trailer, advert, um, we'd call it, for Resident Evil 2. Never saw it, but I remember thinking, oh, okay, that's an interesting name. Now, the dead films didn't really get shown on TV that often. 
I mean, you can actually watch George, uh, George, you can actually watch uh, Night of the Living Dead on YouTube. You know, it's it's out of copyright, so anyone could put it out and release it. It's fine because there's no copyright on it. It's it's public domain. Um, but essentially, around this time, like you wouldn't see these on TV. And I remember going to HMV um, when I'd you know start getting a bit of pocket money, whatever. And I saw that there was this box set, and it was George A. Romero's um night of the living dead box saves the first three films because at that stage it was only the three films released and that was my first introduction to george a romero and really my the majority of my viewing knowledge of his films is those dead films i've not seen the crazies i've only seen the remake martin has been on my list to watch forever i've just never got around to it um i have seen the dark half I have seen Creepshow. I I think I've seen Monkey Shines. I really can't. I'm really not certain. I think it might have been one of those things, watching it on the Sci-Fi Channel late at night and not really paying attention. Um, but there's a chunk of his films that I've never got around to seeing. But I remember picking up this box set, and obviously we will start off with Night of the Living Dead. One of the first things that I thought was very strange about watching this was that, for whatever reason, I don't know, I don't know if it was on George, George A. Romero's behest or if it's something that the uh, distribution company did, but they'd filmed an, uh, a new opening and a new ending, but because the quality was modern day but in black and white, it just stuck out like a sore thumb. I don't really think it added anything to it. I think, from memory, these additional scenes were only kind of explaining the initial what was initially causing it i can't remember exactly if it was a chemical spill or if i'm just getting that mixed up with return the living dead um and then at the end of it it was like a little kind of like a a coda or an epilogue just sort of tacked on i remember just thinking i just want to watch the film as is what's this shit it's a shit they're adding on um but not the living dead this is kind of where it all started. 1968, American independent horror film directed, photographed, and edited by George A. Romero with a screenplay by John Russo and Romero and starring Dwayne Jones and Judith O'Dea. The film follows seven people who are trapped in a rural farmhouse in western Pennsylvania which is under assault by an enlarging group of flesh-eating undead ghouls. Now, one of the infamous ghouls in this i can't remember the guy's name i don't know if i can find him very quickly on the cast list but i think it's the very first zombie they encounter who attacks um barbara's brother what's barbara's brother's name the one that goes they're coming to get you barbara um oh johnny um <laughs> Uh, yeah, and apparently he reprised his roles for new scenes filmed for the 30th anniversary edition of the film. I mean, 30 years later, he's obviously going to naturally have aged a lot, considering he's a already a decaying corpse in the first film. But anyway, I remember seeing a few years later, when I started working in retail, met Peter Goddard, film director who I've worked with on a few projects and also worked with the Vipco. And I think he introduced me to a film that Bill 
Heinzman made, if I've got this right, which is called Zombie Nosh. Um, I think that was... I think it was also called Flesh Eater, but I'm pretty sure it was also released as Zombie Nosh. And that was one of the worst zombie films I've ever seen. He's essentially playing the same zombie. Um, but it's got this... It's got this opening moment with, uh, uh, with the opening credits with a tractor going along and uh, and the, these, this group who eventually get killed by the zombies in it. And it just dragged on. It was one of the longest, like, six minutes of opening titles of just watching a static shot of a tractor or a trailer going down a country road. And the first thing, one of the first things he does when his zombie appears in the film is appears with a woman in the shower, I think, or in a bedroom, grabs her bare breast, and you kind of know what kind of tone film you're going to get. Um, but I'm fairly sure Flesh Eaters was, was released also as Zombie Nosh. Um, alternate titles, yes, yeah, Zombie Nosh and Revenge of the Living Zombies. Yeah, fucking awful title. Absolutely awful. But that was Bill Heinzman, who appears as the opening zombie. But this was... This is an incredibly important piece of cinema um so having gained experience through directing television commercials and industrial films for the pittsburgh-based production company the latent image romero and his friends russo and russell strainer decided to fulfill their ambitions to make a feature film uh electing to make a horror film that would capitalize on contemporary commercial interest in the genre they formed a partnership with carl hardman and marilyn eastman of hardman associates called image 10 after evolving through multiple drafts, Russo and Romero's final script primarily drew influence from Richard Matheson's 1954 novel, I Am Legend. Principal photography took place between July 1967 and January 1968, mainly on location in Evans City. Aside from the Image 10 team themselves, the cast and crew consisted of their friends and relatives, local stage and amateur actors, and residents from the area. Although the film was his directorial debut, Romero utilised many of the guerrilla filmmaking techniques he had honed in his commercial and industrial work to complete the film on a budget of approximately $100,000. we basically get the kind of the archetypal I mean at this stage it's not necessarily a post-apocalyptic event um, as far as we know this is kind of the very 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 start of it this is the night of the living dead I mean Christ even on Wikipedia you can watch the whole film it's just there an hour and a half of it um, it basically tells the story of uh, Johnny and Barbara, siblings, going to visit their father's grave when they come across a zombie who who attacks Johnny, knocking him, basically knocks him onto a gravestone, he bashes his head, and attacking Barbara. Uh, but this, this guy, is his clothes are all tatty, he's pale-faced. I mean, it's hard to tell initially because this is a black-and-white film, but he's kind of got that ghoulish eye makeup. End up meeting other people at this farmhouse, uh, including one of the protagonists, Ben, um, and facing off with there's this pretty cantankerous um, father, husband and wife who have a daughter in the basement with a very key scene there. And um, the house gets swarmed. They have to basically fight for their lives against a swarm of the living dead. Um, 
by seeing this in black and white, I think it's pretty effective because <coughs> it didn't need to be in black and white. In the 1960s, especially 68, you had color film. Color film been around for a couple of decades. Um, that could have been a cost-saving measure, maybe, but it also could have been a way of hiding some of the shortcomings of the budget in terms of you know, the effects. I mean, in that, that sort of time period, you wouldn't necessarily have super gory films, um, you know, in terms of out there gory films. But it kind of covers over some of those, some of those shortcomings to an extent. Um, quite a key moment, really, in this film is, is the finale whether this is an allegory on the times, the political climate of the times that this film came out, or a commentary on the stereotype of, I guess, like the hillbillies. But essentially, Ben, the protagonist, is one of the remaining survivors. Um, African-American chap. This is a film in America in the 60s. Um, and he is seen standing in the window of this house in the following day and is shot, gunned down. He's assumed to be a zombie. It's kind of like a shoot first, ask questions later approach from this group who are basically coming in, saving the day. Um, they're the, the sort where they're just like, oh, aren't you happy that we've got guns and we've got our gun rights? You know, um, and I mean, they're, they're clearing out the zombies on one hand, good. But then they're very quick to assume that guy must be a zombie and gunned him down. Is that because of his race? Um, or because of the, their approach? I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly implicit. It's fairly implicit in, in that, and it's kind of commentary. But this is one of the things with, uh, with George Aramero. He isn't just making horror films for the sake of horror films. There's a social commentary in them, at least in these early, these early of the dead films. Um, that was kind of one of those really one one of the key moments. This has got a number of key moments. There's there's come to get you, Barbara. There's the as as Fran mentions in the chat, the downer ending. It is a downer ending. Um, also the realization that the little girl in the basement, um, who's been poorly, has died, has succumbed to an injury and become a zombie, and then kills her parents. Or kills a mum at least. I can't remember. Um, it's 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 peppered full of of key moments. Um, but yeah, this was released. It made it's made about thirty million box office, which against the budget of hundred fourteen to hundred twenty five thousand uh, dollars at the time of uh, of production. A hell of a return on an independent film. Now we'll move on to what is. Generally, oh, actually, that's there's something probably quite key to talk about the release here before we move on. Night of the Living Dead premiered on October 1st, 1968, the Fulton Theatre in Pittsburgh. Naturally, it was shown as a Saturday afternoon matinee, as was typical for horror films at the time, and attracted an audience consisting of pre-teens and adolescents. The MPAA film rating system was not in place until the following month, so even young children were able to purchase tickets. Bloody hell. Uh, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times chided theatre owners and parents who allowed children access to the film with such potent content for a horror film um, they were entirely unprepared for. 
he said, I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them. They were used to going to the movies, sure, and they'd seen some horror movies before, sure, but this was something else. Um, according to Ebert, the film affected the audience immediately. The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven, but try to remember. At that age, kids take the events on the screen seriously and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got out alive. It's just over. That's all. Um, response from Variety after the initial release reflects the outrage generated by Romero's film. Uh, until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film, pun intended, casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh-based makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who book the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. One commenter asserts that the film garnered little attention from critics except to provoke argument about censoring its grisly scenes. Um, now, if we watch this film in today's age and look at those sort of commentaries, you might think, really? It's, it's pretty tame. Oh, you don't really see much. You see maybe a bit of blood, maybe. Well, it's black and white, so you can't really tell. See a bare bum, I think, in one scene. Yeah. Um, and and I guess it's the same sort of thing of the you know the Exorcist banned for thirty years or so when it came out. Approach was kind of like, oh, what was all the fuss about? You know, not really that scary. Blah blah blah. I guess it depends on what kind of your anticipation levels are, what your expectations level levels are. I suppose is probably more accurate as to what you're thinking you're going to experience, but. And I'm at, you know, these days, internet, everyone has access, you know, Christ knows what kids see at the, yeah, at the, at the tip of a, a screen these days compared to, you know, I was born in the late 80s. So I grew up in the 90s. Um, and yeah, by the time the internet was kind of readily available in houses, I was a teenager. Um, so I'd kind of already seen a few horror films and was a bit preempted. But I guess we probably, most of us will have had that moment as a kid staying up a bit too late or something and you're sneaking out to watch the TV or you've got TV in your room and you're watching it past your bedtime. Seeing a horror film or seeing something that you're just not quite prepared for. You know, I, I, I'm sure that there was films or, you know, whatever that I would have seen as a, as a kid and been like, oh, okay, yeah, I want to watch this. Watched it and then thought, mm, okay. I, I distinctly remember there was a graphic novel of Spider-Man, of all things. And I remember renting it out from my local library, a little kid. I was like, oh, yeah, I like Spider-Man, I like Superman, Batman. And it was this one with uh, the Hobgoblin was the villain. But it was a bit of a horror-esque comic. And I've since, I've since searched it back out as an adult. And it is very tame looking at it from an adult perspective. But when I first read this, 
bear in mind the only comics I I got were from the local news agents. They were kind of like they were pretty kid friendly uh, in terms of like the stories and the artwork. They weren't like the more uh, mature stories. But I remember reading this book, and there's a moment when the Hobgoblin has been. I think it's called Mask, like M A S Q U, and the Hobgoblin's like a demon, and it has he has these people that he's kind of kidnapped, and they're kind of meshed into the wall like something out of Alien. And one woman says something like "help me" or whatever, and he just sort of puts his hand through her face. It's not overtly detailed in this drawing, as as I say, I I, I searched it out as an adult. Uh, to kind of just see what freaked me out. But I do remember, as a, as a little kid, getting to that page, and probably wisely, just sort of thinking, nah, I don't think I should be reading this. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I think with, with, with some films, I, I can get it. I can get it. If you're not used to seeing those films, and you're a kid, and you can just go into the cinema, you know, and just see anything... If you see something like this that you're not prepared for, of people that are walking around eating other people, it'll freak you out. It'll freak you the flip out. Um, so before we move on to the next film, let's see what's cracking on in the chat. Um, Fran, I can't remember when I first saw this, but it was an early horror film that left me with a downer ending. Uh, the graph, I saw the Tom Savini remake before this, um, and 100% this film is an all-time classic. Fran the Cannon, now these days, teens seeing a man of colour get gunned down would just want this cancelled rather than debate its message. Uh, and yes, the comic is masks. Of course, yeah. Yeah. It, the, the first thought would be, we need to cancel it. I'm, I'm surprised that these these films haven't come up for some bogus reason of oh, that should be cancelled because it's purporting this or that, and, you know, let's just ignore the, the the commentary. Let's just get angry without really understanding it. Wouldn't surprise me. Such is... Such is life. <laughs> um, but we then follow this up about ten years later with his return to his story with... Dawn of the Dead, what many consider his landmark, his top of the top of the the tree, the high point of the series. Now I have a slightly different opinion there, but I do fully respect that this is kind of considered the the mecca. There's a 1978 zombie horror film written, directed, and edited by George Romero and produced by Richard P. Rubenstein. Um, an American-Italian international co-production is the second film in his series of zombie films, and though it contains no characters or settings from the preceding film, it shows the largest scale... Well, I mean, most of them died, didn't they? Um, it shows the largest scale effects of a zombie apocalypse on society. In the film, a phenomenon of unidentified origin has caused the reanimation of the dead who prey on human flesh. David M.G., Ken Forey, Scott Reininger, and Galen Ross star as survivors of the outbreak who barricade themselves inside a suburban shopping mall amid mass hysteria. Now, my first thought when I saw this, and I think it must have been watching the box set that I'd purchased from HMV, was... Holy shit, I didn't realise Keenan's dad was in a horror film. Uh, so Ken Forey, I believe, was uh, 
Keenan's father, I want to say, um, in Keenan and Kel. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's done quite. A, he's, he's got a huge filmography. Um, I've seen a few other horror films with him in. Was he in Galaxy of Terror? Don't know. He was in Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, which I did not think was very good. Uh, Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. He is very good in that film. One of the rare highlights in that film, because it's not, it's not a great film. Um, too, too many, too many to go through. He's also been in The X-Files. Um, he's in the, the 30 Days of Night, Dust to Dust. It's a miniseries. Did not know there was a miniseries of that. Um, and, and a number of other things. And Dimension 404, which I feel... I feel like I watched that, but I completely forgot that existed. Can't remember a thing about that, but yeah, it's weird. Anyway, Ken Forey featured in that. So Romero wanted to make another zombie film after Night of the Living Dead for several years to avoid being... Um, well, sorry, he waited to make another zombie film after Night of the Living Dead for several years to avoid being stereotyped as a horror director. Which he kind of... <laughs> the majority of his projects are horror, really, aren't they? From, from what I'm aware of. Upon visiting Monroeville Mall in Monroeville, Pennsylvania with a friend whose company managed the complex, he decided to use the location as the basis for the film's story. The project came to the attention of Italian filmmaker Dario Argento, praise he, uh, who along with his brother Claudio and producer Alfredo Cuomo agreed to co-finance the film in exchange for its international distribution rights. I mean, that's a hell of a move. Uh, Argento also consulted with Romero during the scriptwriting phase. Uh, principal photography on Dawn of the Dead took place between November 1977 and February 1978 on location in Monroe and Pittsburgh. The special makeup effects were created by Tom Savini, whose work on the film led to an extensive career creating similar effects for other horror films. I mean, he also features in the film, but I mean, Tom Savini, his name is synonymous with horror uh, special effects. He is kind of the gore father really you've got you've got names in in the modern era that you know starting to get spoken of in the same sort of terms like i think greg nicotero is one um obviously more 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 rounded i suppose to like uh horror sci-fi and action is uh stan winston um the late stan winston but there's quite a few but really in terms of horror tom savini has he's been involved in a lot of it is he's the gore father really um and this his work on this did lead to an extensive career in the special effects world and um, post-production romero and argento edited separate versions of the film for their respective markets uh, argento's version features a progressive rock score composed and performed by his frequent collaborators goblin open love goblin uh, i really should listen to some of their stuff outside of their Dario argento scores because that's literally i say i love goblin that's all my exposure to them has been is uh is dario argento films uh while romero's cut primarily favors stock cues from the dewolf music library so anyone watching this live on twitch.tv forward slash tezius t-e-z-z-i-u-s be sure to give me a follow um i will be doing a watch party once we wrap the show a little bit later on and we are going to watch the argento cut of dawn of the dead uh, i had thought maybe doing another film after that but i realized that we're already an hour and a half into the show so it probably is just going to be a one film uh otherwise we'll be here 
all night into the into the morning. Um, but yeah, I do watch parties quite regularly. Be sure to follow if the film is available in your location, of course. If not, just watch the channel anyway. Uh, but yeah, we will be watching that after the show. So if you're watching this live and you do fancy watching Dawn of the Dead, stick around after the discussion and we will be putting it on, having a drink, having some snacks, watching some George Romero edited by and scored by Dario Argento. What more could you want on a Friday night? So as mentioned, this film is kind of looking at the widespread implications on society of a zombie outbreak. While Night of the Living Dead focused on the emergence of this and focusing on a small group of characters being stuck in isolation, we do get that here as well, but on a larger scale. Again, it's a social commentary on consumerism, the fact that uh, the characters have, I guess quite smartly decided Let's haul up in a mall until this all, you know, washes over and this all gets cleaned up. Because a mall has everything you could need in it. You've got grocery sections, get your food, drink and all that. So you're going to be covered and stocked up for a long time. Especially in America, you'll have weapons. We don't really have that in the UK other than specialised gunsmiths. But you'll have weapons, you know, you can go to Walmart and get a gun. Um, uh, clothing um animities entertainment because you might think oh why do you need to go roller derby or whatever when you're in a zombie apocalypse you have to let off some steam it's good for your mental health and your psyche uh you got everything in a mall but then there's also the commentary at that time and malls do still exist but with the advent of you know online shopping it's much easier to just go order it online you know why go out when i could just get it next day delivery from amazon you know um it's not so much of a big thing these days as it uh, as it once was and so but in that time everyone shopped to the flock to the mall consumerism going out spending mon- money feeding the economy um were kind of paramount and it's kind of a commentary on the American public's need to go out and spend money and buy things. That's even even in death, that's where they kind of flock to. Um, like I say, it's a commentary. It's not done in such a hackneyed way as to go or they'd go in there to do shopping, but everyone's kind of heading in that uh, in that direction. Um, so th- with this film, we have, as I said, David M. G. Ken Furry, Scott uh, Reiniger, and uh, Galen Ross. Are featuring um, the United States is devastated by a mysterious plague that reanimates recently dead human beings. And I should mention as well that poster artwork that was shown on screen just then. I think was like one of the best taglines for me that really drew my attention. In the, the artwork with the the, the white um, half skull coming out the ground with I don't know what that is on it. If it's birds or something, I didn't really get. I don't really understand that. I guess it's blood, actually. That make more sense. But the tagline, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth, R- encapsulated my attention straight away. Because um, that's just, I think that's such an excellent, underutilized sort of uh, phrasing to really kind of gravitate your interest to, oh, okay, hell is overfilling, is overfull. So 
I've got to walk somewhere. People keep dying. Where else are they going to go? Uh, obviously, they're not talking about heaven and hell in this film, but uh, it's I think such a such a unique tagline. Um, at the dawn of the crisis, it's been reported that millions of people have died and reanimated. Despite the government's best efforts, social order is collapsing. Royal communities and the National Guard have been effective in fighting the zombie hordes in open country. But urban centres, so the open country, that's kind of what we saw at the very tail end of Night of the Living Dead. But urban centres descend into chaos. Completely makes sense. If you're looking in the countryside, you're going to have everyone knows everyone. Farmhouses, lots of land separating things. Unless you walk around out in the open, you're going to be in a house. Urban areas where there's huge amounts of overpopulation, or just the population itself is, is, is vast. Tower box of apartments and flats, as we kind of see early in this film. It's going to be so difficult to round up and clear out or dispose of the dead to stop a plague spreading. Um, and yeah, we, we meet our cast of characters who eventually decide to huddle up in a mall and um things don't go well things don't go well i won't say too much more about the plot because we will be watching it after the show um so the history of the dawn of the dead began 1974 when george romero was invited by friend mark mason of oxford development company who romero knew from an acquaintance in his alma mater carnegie mellon to visit the monroeville mall which mason's company managed after showing Romero hidden parts of the mall, during which Romero noted the bliss of the consumers, Mason jokingly suggested that someone would be able to survive in the mall should an emergency ever occur. With this inspiration, Romero began to write the screenplay for the film. Romero and his producer, uh, Richard P. Rubenstein, were unable to procure any domestic investors for the new project. By chance, word of the sequel reached Italian horror director Dario Argento. A fan of Night of the Living Dead and an early critical proponent of the film, Argento was eager to help the horror classic receive a sequel. He met Romero and Rubenstein, helping to secure financing in exchange for international distribution rights. Uh, Argento invited Romero to Rome so he would have a change of scenery while writing the screenplay. The two would also discuss plot developments. Romero was able to secure the availability of the Monroeville Mall as well as additional financing through his connections with the mall's owners at Oxford Development. Once the casting was completed, principal shooting was scheduled to begin at Pennsylvania on November 13th, 1977. There is an alternate ending as well. According to the original screenplay... Uh, Peter and Francine were to kill themselves. Peter by shooting himself, and Fran by sticking her head into the path of the rotating main helicopter blades. The ending credits would run over a shot of the helicopter blades turning until the engine winds down, implying that the two would not have gotten far if they had chosen to escape. During production, it was decided to change the ending of the film. Much of the lead into the two suicides remains in the film as Francine leans out of a helicopter upon seeing the zombies approach and Peter puts a gun to his head, ready to shoot himself. An additional scene showing a zombie having the top of its head cut off by the helicopter blades, thus foreshadowing Francine's suicide, was included early in the film. Romero has stated that the original ending was scrapped before being shot, although behind-the-scenes photos show the original version was at least tested. The head appliance made for Fran's suicide was instead used in the opening SWAT raid, made up to resemble an African-American male and blown apart by a shotgun blast. Um... I mean, there's quite a bit here in regards to Tom Savini's uh, approach to the makeup effects. 
Um, he'd been offered the chance to provide special effects and makeup for Romero's first zombie film uh, before being drafted into the Vietnam War, but made his debut as an effects artist on Dawn of the Dead. Savini had been known for his makeup in horror for some time prior to Dawn of the Dead, and in his book explains special effects techniques, Bizarro explains how his time in Vietnam influenced his craft. He had a crew of eight um, to assist in applying grey makeup to two to three hundred extras each weekend during the shoot. Um, I mean, the gore in Dawn of the Dead is exceptional for the time. Uh, one of my only kind of critiques that we have discussed, you know, previously on the show in terms of my favoritism on certain entries in the in the franchise over others is the look of the zombies is kind of just grey green you know the gore is there the gore is certainly there but in terms of makeup and i don't know if it's cost saving because of how many extras there were but it was basically yeah, just grey grey or green which i did think in comparison to a later entry was it was a bit unfortunate um so I think rather than kind of talking about its its releases in in you know how how it did and blah 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 I mean it's a huge success huge huge success and similar to Night of the Living Dead it has since had a remake this time by Zack Snyder in 2004 prior film Night of the Living Dead was remade by um Savini in 1990 um I should I did think I, I scrolled past da, 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 da. There is a section, yes. It has been followed by a number of sequels, but there have been unofficial Italian-made sequels, um, which began in 1979 with Zombie 2, which was released over here as Zombie Flesh Eaters. And the first time I ever saw Zombie Flesh Eaters, I didn't like it, because I wasn't really that well-versed in, like, falchy um, Italian horror. <laughs> It really made me unsettled. I have since watched it a few years ago. I think it was on Amazon Prime. And I do actually quite enjoy it. Being a bit more used to films like The Beyond and uh, The House the House by the Cemetery. Um, but there's, done, but there, there's been a number of sequels, uh, unofficial Italian sequels. But it did actually get an official sequel. Again, a few years have passed. This was released in late 78. But in 1985, he did follow this up with Day of the Dead. Personally, my favourite, not a very popular opinion, but personally my favourite of, uh, of the series. Let's just have a quick look at the, uh, the chat before I continue. The Gruff says, I remember when I first saw this film as a teenager, I thought it was cool to see a couple of zombie kids. Did not expect that. Uh, sometimes they look blue like the Smurfs. Well, yeah, certainly. Certainly they do. Um, the Gruff, me neither. I thought it was absolute rubbish as a teenager, but now I'm older, I really enjoy it. But if you don't know how Italian horrors work, then yeah, it's weird and unsettling, yeah. It's it's freaked me out. Not 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 freaked me out. I was just like, oh, this is grim. This is just like, this is just not nice. <laughs> um, but being a bit more adept with uh with 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 Fulci stuff, and I've got a massive massive book about Fulci's films, which is excellent. Um, yeah, I became a bit more used to that style of zombie gore, which we did get in Spades. 
in this film, 1985's Day of the Dead. American post-apocalyptic zombie horror film written and directed by George A. Romero, produced by Richard P. Rupenstein. Rupenstein, don't know. The third film in Romero's Night of the Living Dead series. It stars Laurie Cardill, Terry Alexander, Joseph Pilato, Jarleth Conroy and Richard Liberty as members of a group of survivors of a zombie apocalypse sheltering in an underground bunker in Florida where they must determine the outcome of humanity's conflict with the undead horde. Romero described the film as a tragedy about a lack of human communication that causes chaos and collapse even in the small little pie slice of society. Yeah, this is nihilistic uh, to to the nth degree. This is end of the world, basically. With Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, we saw the early stages of um of the zombie apocalypse, the zombie outbreak. Um, with Day of the Dead, we're kind of at the end of the world, almost. It's really the 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 living are in hiding, and the dead own streets um and we're left with a small group of survivors really trying to kind of cling on to any semblance of humanity they have and and ability to continue it's a really dark film it's a really dark film um it also explores an evolution in the zombies now with another film in this series when I first saw this evolution, which is on the poster artwork coming up, Bub, that was the one. That was the one part of the film I didn't really like. I, I didn't really get on board with this zombie uh, learning or remembering. Don't know why. It just always seemed a bit cheesy to me. That being said, repeat viewings. I I do actually quite enjoy the character, uh, but on the first viewing. And like I say, it's it's similar with someone coming up a bit later on. On the first viewing, I thought, oh, God, it's a bit cheesy. A bit cheesy. But we've really got um, a power struggle emerging. There's kind of our protagonist, which is uh, Laurie Cardell, Dr. Sarah Bowman, a scientist who's research researching the cause of the zombie outbreak. Um... She is essentially the protagonist of the, of, of the piece. Working alongside Terry Alexander, who's John Flyboy, the group's helicopter pilot, and uh, Jarleth Conroy, group's alcoholic radio operator. Um, Anthony DeLeo Jr. is Private Miguel Salazar. That is Sarah's suicidal lover uh, and one of Rhodes' men, Rhodes being played by Joseph Plato. He is essentially the antagonist of the film. Or he's the lead antagonist, really. He's an increasingly mentally unhinged soldier and the self-appointed leader of the military group. It's a great performance, because he is a dickhead. Um, but they're living underground in this bunker whilst, basically, there's like a fence surrounding the, the platform to get that. Set-pieces-wise, this is, again, like another step up. Like It, it, is, it is brilliant in terms of these helicopter shots going around of all the, the, the dead and the desolate streets where there's no living, there's no living really. Maybe there's like an alligator, I think, but there's no people living anymore. Um, and there's just ever-dwindling group of survivors in a bunker along with this uh, surgeon 
Richard Liberty playing Dr. Matthew Frankenstein Logan, who's the group's main surgeon and scientist. He is basically, he's got Bub, the zombie, and he is trying to research and test, you know, can, can zombies be domesticated? Can we live with them? What makes them how they are? But, um, and doing so, he is he needs test subjects and as it kind of comes out later on in the film he's been using the deceased soldiers the friends of these soldiers to test on it's really messed up like the gore in this film is is off the charts you know it's kind of i'd say akin to the gore that we were starting to get in in the walking dead in the early well, i say the early years i didn't watch past series six or seven i don't know stopped watching it a while ago but you know we got some great zombie gore in that tv series and this was way back in the mid 80s and it had similar sort of gore like the gore the gore is is, is brilliant on it savini does an excellent job on this film it is a very much a downer film it's got some great jump scares the very opening of the film which was utilized in series three of stranger things where um sarah bowman's in a white room approaching a calendar on the wall and i think the calendar is depicting an image of a field i think or a beach maybe i know a beach features at the end of the film and all of a sudden these hands burst through the through the wall a very very effective jump scare there um but let's let's talk about the production we'll move on i will say that this is the trilogy i'm going to focus really on the trilogy predominantly we're going to touch on the sequels but we're definitely not going to be spending as much time on them um just because this is is okay <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll go into them we'll go into them i'm not going to brush over them but i i, I do feel that this is this is maybe where the story could have could have ended maybe um i just actually noticed in the staff uh, i didn't i never even picked up on this that um greg nicotero was actually also in the cast he played private johnson one of rhodes's men so greg nicotero um did special effects makeup on dead Dead. so did wait a minute did tom savini not do was this a greg nicotero job and not tom savini um Oh, Tom Savini returned to provide the film's special makeup effects. He was assisted by a team of artists <coughs> that included Greg, Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger, who later became known for their work on The Walking Dead. So there we go. There's the six degrees of separation. But originally intended the film to be gone with the wind of zombie films. Following budget disputes and the artistic need to release the film unrated, the budget of the film was cut in half, dropping from $7 million to $3.5 million. This forced Romero to scale back his story, rewriting the script and adjusting his original vision to fit the smaller budget. So I do think, I, I'm sure I've read before, and we'll maybe confirm this later on, I do think that when they did the sequel to this, Land of the Dead, that, that it was because he'd always wanted to do this with a bigger budget or there was a lot that he had to um, compromise on to be able to get it filmed because of the, the reduced budget. So I get that to an extent. I do, I, do, I do understand that. And I think we won't talk about spin-offs or anything, but I know that there was a comics run that he was either involved with or was based on his writings called like Empire of the Dead. Uh, I read a few issues of it, but it wasn't really for me. Um, but I think, again, that was because... 
to my understanding, there was a lot that he wanted to do in Day of the Dead that he just couldn't. And he had to adjust and, and, and work within within what he could. Um, the total of five scripts were written as Romero wrestled with the film's concepts and the budgetary constraints. The first draft was over 200 pages, which he later condensed to 122. This is the true original script, and to date no copies of it had come to light. This version was likely rejected because UFDC felt it was too expensive for them to produce, even with an R rating. Romero subsequently scaled down the scope of the script into a 155-page draft, often erroneously referred to as the original version, then condensed it again to a 104-page draft labelled the second version, second draft, in an unsuccessful final attempt to get the story within budget parameters. When this failed, he drastically altered the original story concept and ultimately produced a shooting draft that numbered only 88 pages. So if people don't know, a general kind of rule of thumb with script writing is the number of pages is generally a good idea for the number of minutes the film will be. Roughly. It's not an exact science, but um, you think about it, dialogue takes up a lot of a page, but when spoken, it gets through quite quickly whereas uh landscape and establishing shots and movement shots whatever will only take up a very small amount of the page because you're just describing the location or whatever or an, an opening shot but when watching the film to set the scene or whatever that will take much longer than it does on the page so the kind of uh trade-off between them does usually equal if you've got a 90 page script it's probably going to be around 90 minutes there or thereabouts so, you know, when you've got a 155-page draft of a horror film, I'm not surprised that it would be needed to be reduced down because uh, it's not usually that you have that kind of, uh, especially a 200-page draft. It's quite quite rare for a horror film, especially in the 80s, to, to, to be that long. Um, the film was given a very limited release. This is chronicled in the documentary The Many Days of Day of the Dead on the two-disc Anchor Bay Special Edition DVD of the film. Some of the original concepts and characters remain, but the film differs greatly from Romero's original script, as stated by actress Laurie Cardile. He could have made me this sexy little twit bouncing around with a gun, much more the sexual element, but he made her intelligent and strong. In fact, whenever I would try and make her a little more emotional, he would not allow me to do that. Um, Joseph Pilato was cast as Rhodes, the film's antagonist. As stated by Pilato, he pretty much just gave it to me. I don't know if he auditioned other people, but it was very quick. I came in and it was like, you got it. Pilato had acted in two prior films directed by Romero, the first being Pilato's debut, Dawn of the Dead, and the second being Night Riders. In between those films, he played his first lead role in a film entitled Effects. Um... Pilato was asked if Romero had him in mind, and Pilato stated that one of the reasons why he got the role was because of the budget being scaled down from 7 to 3.5 million. Uh, members of the band NRBQ also appeared in the film in zombie makeup. Okay. Um, so this film, again, it's, it grossed over $30 million worldwide, so for an independent film, again, with a very small budget, it did well. Um, it's not... The highest rated, it's reviewed well, uh, generally, but it isn't the highest rated of the films. It is quite nihilistic. It is fairly downer for the majority of the film. It has a kind of a happy ending, but as happy an ending as you can have in an end-of-the-world zombie apocalypse scenario. Um, but yeah, it's it's very bleak. It is very bleak. And it's incredibly gory. Um, the The... When Pilato's character Rhodes dies, 
I remember just being... I hadn't ever seen anything like that at that time. It's one of those zombie kills that I don't think has ever really been done quite as well as it has here, and that is the head being pulled off, which I remember his vocal cord starts going higher and higher. Like, it's just screaming, and it goes, ah! I can't do it. It goes really high before his head's torn off, and the the typical trope, which you see you know, d done time and time again to various degrees of success, of the... Um, the horde ripping through the guts of the zombie. Um, I just think that that his whole death scene, especially when he opens the door, sees all the zombies, he then gets shot into them by Bub. Um, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But I can understand people not really enjoying it um, as much. It's, it's, just, it's just a dark film. It is just quite dark. And it does feel like it has a bit more of a... Italian feel to it to a degree. I don't know if that's just because of the increased levels of gore or that it is quite nihilistic. Um but it you know it's it, it's just dark. It's just it's a dark film. And this was for a very long time the end of the of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead trilogy series. Again, I'm not, we talked briefly about the remakes. There's been a bunch of remakes for, for one reason or another of Day of the Dead. None of which are connected. Um, now, there is something interesting here. So, yeah, there's Day of the Dead 2, Contag Contagion. It's nothing to do with it. Uh, Day of the Dead, straight to DVD. Very little, very little original plot in it. Uh, Day of the Dead Bloodline. I saw a bit of that. It's fucking terrible. Very little to do with it. Um, the television series I've reviewed previously. Okay, it's quite cheap. It just feels quite cheap. The sci-fi TV series. So make of that what you will. But we reviewed it. I think I might have given it a five or a five and a half out of ten. Um, it's covering the first twenty-four hours of the zombie invasion as well. Um. And the, the director confirmed it will have a connection to the original 1985 film. I can't remember if it did. I don't think it did. Uh, but interestingly here, it was announced in July 2021 that Laurie Cardall, Terry Alexander and Jarlath Conroy were cast in Night of the Living Dead 2, set for release in 2022. Now, 2022 has been and gone, and I have not seen a night of the living dead 2 also why wouldn't they call it day of the dead 2 considering they were both in all three of them were in were in that um just have a quick look here it does have an imdb page um it's in pre-production desperately grasping for a semblance of normalcy in a post-apocalyptic existence a small island community faces an unimaginable terror that threatens everything it means to be human Um, I mean, there's poster artwork. It's being made by Marcus Slabine. What do I know him in? I don't think anything. The Last Call was a short. His additional crew on Dark Knight Rises, art department. It's mainly worked in the art department. Don't know. Don't know any of these other credits. Um, but Laurie Cardell is playing Mandy 
And Jarleth Conroy is playing Paul Bronson. Now, if I go back to Day of the Dead, <clears throat> are those different characters? Yes, they are. So it's got characters cast in it. Great. Not a continuation. They're playing different characters. Who cares? Yeah, so straight away, my interest in that project is just going to drop down the pooper. Okay, well, it. I mean, maybe it might be all right, but it does definitely feel like it's going to be one of those, hey, let's use the Of the Dead, uh, you know, title, make a film, and it'll be absolute shite. There's been quite a lot of Day of the Dead remakes that, just, as we mentioned, just have nothing to do with it. Just bastardizing the title, which is a shame because I really like this film. Uh, we'll move on now. So... Again, this has one of the biggest gaps in the films. Prior films, you know, 10 years or so. But the gap from this one was 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. George A. Romero returned to his world with Land of the Dead in 2005, a post-apocalyptic horror film written and directed by uh, Romero, the fourth film in his uh, Living Dead series. Um... It was released in 2005 with a budget of 15 to 19 million, the highest in his series, and grossed 46 million. The story of the Land of the Dead deals with a zombie assault on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where a feudal like government exists. The survivors in the film have fled to the Golden Triangle area of downtown Pittsburgh. The region is protected by on two sides by rivers, and on the third by an electric barricade that survivors term the throat. Released in North America on uh, June 24, 2005. Land of the Dead, which I'll update the uh, image on here. Uh, Land of the Dead received mostly positive reviews from critics. I wasn't a big fan of this when I watched it, and I think I saw it in the cinema. Um, I don't know what it was about it. There was a trope in this, which as mentioned, I didn't really like initially in, uh, in Day of the Dead, and that was the smart zombie. The concept of having a zombie evolving or remembering or returning to the activities, and that is something that gets picked up, you know, Dawn the Dead, zombies going to the mall, they're doing the things they did when they were alive. Um, Day of the Dead, Bub looks at a phone and he picks it up, pulls it to his ear, showing how he remembers that how we work things. It's not just a completely, completely brainless entity using a gun. He uses a gun in the film. So in Land of the Dead, there is a particular zombie who kind of is like the leader almost, is one point at a gas station holding a, the pump, you know, as if he was filling up a car. But for me, what irritated me was it just, we, we constantly got in this film shots of that zombie just going, ah! Ah! and I get it. It's, they don't talk, they've lost their vocal abilities or whatever. But it's trying to communicate, and that's the only way that it can, because it might be even a step too far for it to out of nowhere four films in form words. I don't think it does. Um, but I found it just a bit cheesy. On second viewing, I, I did watch this again uh, about a year or so back. It's all right. Maybe I just, my initial reaction is one of just, oh, God, cheesy. But on a repeat view, then I don't feel quite as strongly about it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. This film's a bit... It's okay. It's okay. But I I, I don't know if it's because of the, the new landscape of it being you know, in the 2000s. 
so it has that different look and tone because obviously technology, cameras, yada yada yada. Um, <clears throat> but it it just it didn't really resonate with me this one. Uh, looking at the chat, um, Gruff, I saw it in the cinema. I was really disappointed, especially with the smart zombie. I liked the idea; it was just done pretty crap. Agree, we're agreed there. Found the canon. It didn't feel like the original trilogy for me. It didn't have the subtle messaging you got in Romero's first three. It's just fine. Yeah, you get some good gore in it. I mean, you also get some cheesy gore because digital effects have now come about and you can do a lot more with computers than you could practically, probably for a fraction of the price. Um, didn't look great, though. There's a moment, I think, with a priest, a headless priest, who then flicks his head over, which his head is still attached. It's just behind him and then flips forward and bites on someone's arm. When I first saw that, I thought, oh, okay, that's a bit inventive. But on a repeat view, and I was like, oh. On a repeat viewing, being older and not really at all liking digital effects that much, just because it would always just take me out of the moment. But I understand the practicality of it, but it would always take me out of it. Um, I just thought, oh, that looks a bit crappy now. Um, there is a moment in a in a club, because they have... Society has had to learn to adapt and evolve, and so they would keep out zombies, but then they'd also... Certain areas of society would use zombies for their amusement. And there is a club which has a couple of familiar uh, zombies from the Free Cornettos trilogy uh, hung up, which I thought was a very nice little touch. Um, the gruff, yeah, John Leguizamo, say no more, awful actor. There's a moment when he talks about putting a jihad on someone. I just remember thinking, oh, fuck off. Just fuck off. <laughs> it just sounds so cheesy. Just instantly made me go, just fuck off, John. <laughs> Um, there's some decent attack moments and there's some good moments of dread there's the moment when um, people are trying to flee the city and they end up at the throat, the electric fence but then they basically almost get cornered by the zombies um, and it becomes a massacre but it's pretty good um, the zombies walking through the water where basically oh, they don't need, they're dead, they don't need oxygen what's to stop them just walking along the floor of the water uh, akin to the scene in Zombie 2, Zombie Flesh Eaters with a zombie having a fight with a shark. Um, that's a cool moment when you see the heads emerging from the water because they're kind of being led to uh, to go and fight. But um, we also get some of the cheese... Well, not some of the cheesiest. There's, there's a bit more to come. But some of the more notable bad zombie acting. There's just some of the zombies in this... That just get unfortunately focused on on the screen, not him on the screen at the moment, but in terms of just some scenes that are notably bad. Like you can see on if you're watching this live, there's a screenshot at the moment, and there's just some where the performances are just probably need to be told to be reined in a little bit. I don't know. There'll just there'd be these moments where I just think, oh fucking hell, that guy thinks this is five minutes of fame. It probably is. That probably is the pinnacle. I'm not going to take anything away from someone, but. Subtlety goes a long way sometimes. It's not the stage where you need to ex 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 exasperate, accentuate your movements to, to reach the people at the back. You know, you're on TV, you can be, you're on a film, you can be subtle. Um, so let's have a quick look at the production. So after a decade of disinterest towards the zombie genre through the 90s, uh, zombies have begun to rise in popularity again in the 2000s after box office hits like 28 Days Later and Shaun of the Dead. This inspired George A. Romero to make his long-awaited fourth instalment of the zombie series since its recent instalment, Day of the Dead, released in 85. 
Romero had negotiated the 20th Century Fox, whom wanted the film to be titled Night of the Living Dead. He refused, wanting to use the title Dead Reckoning. And the studio then wanted to title it Night of the Living Dead, Dead Reckoning. It turned out that Fox sought to own the rights to Night of the Living Dead franchise, and Romero decided not to do business with them. Romero was offered a budget of 15 to 19 million after negotiating with Universal Pictures, making the film his highest budget in the series. He used it as a chance to draw upon some elements he wasn't able to use on Day of the Dead due to budget constraints. So Dead Reckoning, funnily enough, got used as a subtitle, I think, for the Capcom game. I think it was the third one, set in the mall, which obviously has an inspiration of, of Dawn of the Dead. Um, oh my god, the name completely escapes me with Frank the Photographer. Chat will let me know. Uh, chat will let me know, but... Um, the third film, I'm sure, is called Dead Reckoning. Um, and uh, Dead Rising, thank you, Fran. Dead Rising, yes. I think the third one, I'm sure the third film, third game, sorry, had the subtitle Dead Reckoning. I think that was adapted into a film, but I've never never seen the film. Anyway, um, yeah, so the, the budgetary constraints kind of stopped him being able to do a lot of the things that he wanted to do in, in Day of the Dead. Um, but yeah, it's... It's an interesting film. It's an interesting film. Uh, I didn't even realise Asia Argento was uh, in this. After working with um, Dario Argento, he he cast her as Slack. Didn't even notice that. Um, she's an alright actress. She's done a few things, and she's I think she's directed as well, isn't she? Uh, Asia Argento, yeah, she's a filmmaker. She's certainly better as a better actress than. Um, what did I watch not too long ago for the first time? Godfather Part 3. Um, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, Sophia Capella. She's a good filmmaker. She's a fucking awful actress. Um, I mean, that's just a bad film in general. Like, I, I, I understand why it was not uh, held in the same regard as the other Godfather films. But, uh, yeah, speaking of the nepotism of hiring siblings, um, which Argento has hired his daughter a number of times. I think that's her on screen now. Uh, Asia Argento. Um, anyway, so there's not really much I want to talk more about on that. It did okay. It did 40 mil, um, on a, on a sim, on a, you know, 15 to 19 million budget. Yeah, that did fine. Um, and you could even argue maybe then that's when the series should have ended. Um, but the next film that he released only two years later, so the shortest gap in films, um, to this to this stage was one that I to be honest I can't remember a great deal about I saw it once when it came out didn't have much impact on me haven't watched it since and that is Diary of the Dead I remember this being fine but unnecessary for me and I think as well I wasn't that interested because this was going back to the start of the the outbreak. I guess what's what more is there to say with Land of the Dead? Naturally, society will go through cataclysmic events, uh, outbreaks and whatnot, be taken to the brink, but ultimately survive to some to some extent and learn to adapt. We saw with you know from Dawn of the Dead to Day of the Dead that society just everything had gone fucked. Society was fucked. We then saw From Day of the Dead to Land of the Dead, which I have to assume that there is a connection. I mean, none of these films have crossover characters, but in terms of being set in the same world, we are now at a stage where society has learnt 
to okay well you know if we keep them there and if we manage manage it and uh do things with rules then things can work but you know it only takes one thing to go wrong for the whole plan to go out the window so with diary of the dead in 2007 george Romero to the approach of found footage horror um written, written written directed by him um although independently produced it was distributed theatrically by the weinstein company released in cinemas on february the 15th 2008 and on dvd by dimension extreme and genius products on may 20th 2008 uh it's the fifth entry in the series so this is a oh, i can't talk too much on this one because i really don't remember too much of it um it's a found footage it's a found footage film at the start of the outbreak um there's not really much i can say let's move for two million budget recouped 5.3 at the box office just nothing stands out for me in this film and i remember enough to go i'm not really that fussed about watching it again you know 92 minutes is a standard sort of length for a film but yeah do I, do I care enough to go back and rewatch it? Not really. Not really. There was something I had to watch because I hadn't seen it at all. And that was enough. Um, but, yeah, this... One interesting note to include here is that there are a number of newsreaders in the film from the world of horror. Quentin Tarantino, Wes Craven, Guillermo del Toro, Simon Pegg and Stephen King lent their voices as newsreaders in the film. So that's something. Didn't even realise, and this is probably because I haven't seen it since its release, that uh, Tatiana Maslany, uh, who's everyone's favourite She-Hulk, uh, but she's an excellent actress, she's an orphan black, she is in the film. Um, no other names really are jumping out to me. George Romero plays the chief of police, and uh, Greg Nicotaro plays a zombie surgeon. So... Uh, but even before releasing Land of the Dead, Romero wanted to do a film about emerging media. After releasing Land, which he felt was big in scope, he wanted to go back to make a relatively low-budget film to relate back to the origins of the thing, and felt that his emerging media idea could easily fulfil it. Again, so I, I respect that, you know, there's, there's an idea behind it. It's not just a case of, just make another zombie film. You know, it's, there's a voice on it whether it's you know consumerism or is, is humanity worth saving which i guess is a comment used in this film uh but for me it was just it was just eh, it's fine um he made extensive use of computer generated imagery because it allowed him to shoot the film quickly and add the effects later also, the film style, as if shot with handheld cameras, necessitated a shift from his usual method of film of working, which involved filming multiple camera angles and assembling scenes in the editing room. Instead, Romero filmed much of the action in long, continuous takes. Uh, the film's a prequel rather than a continuation of Land of the Dead, described as a rejigging of the myth by Romero. The film takes place concurrently with the events depicted in Night of the Living Dead. This was partially based on a practical concern, as Romero thought that if the film took place too far into the zombie apocalypse, schools would have been closed, and thus it would not make sense to have student filmmakers as a focal point. Uh, yeah, okay, get that, makes sense. Uh, it was also inspired partially by the Book of the Dead anthology series, which depicts other events that happened during the same time frame. Even though the fourth film, Land of the Dead, was studio-produced for Universal Studios, 
Diary of the Dead was produced by Romero Grunwald Productions, formed by Romero and his producer friend Peter Grunwald uh, with Art Fire Films. What is Book of the Dead? Uh, the Book of the Dead is an anthology of horror stories first published in 1989, edited by John Skip and Craig Spector, and featuring a foreword written by George A. Romero. Uh, erroneously credited as George R. Romero in first print editions of the book. I bet they're going to be worth a bit of money. Um, all the stories in the anthology are united by the same premise seen in Romero's apocalyptic films, depicting a worldwide outbreak of zombies and various reactions to it. The first book was followed by three years later by a follow-up, Still Dead, Book of the Dead 2, it's a bit of a cheesy title, with a new group of writers tackling the same premise, though the second book puts the stories in order according to their imagined chronology of the zombie takeover. The Book of the Dead compilations are regarded as classic anthologies in the horror and splatterpunk genres, uh, featuring a great number of famous names, including Stephen King, um, George... No, Joe R. Lansdale, Robert R. McCammon, and forwarded by George Romero and Tom Savini. They are likely the first anthologies of zombie-themed tales ever printed and have even been cited as perhaps the first true zombie literature as such. Now, how in the shit have I not heard of this book before? And you know I'm going to go on Amazon, even though my bank balance is tapped. Book of the Dead. Uh, Prime. Oh. God, there's Egyptian Books of the Dead. Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, okay, well, maybe that's a search for another time. It doesn't look like they're in print, perhaps. Um, Fran the Cannon in the chat regarding Diary of the Dead. Um, well, Fran mentions, oh, sorry, Fran the Gruff mentions, yeah, I've seen this too, but I have no memory of it. Francis, looking at the cast, one of the guys went on to play Albert Wesker in the later Resident Evil films. Guess he got the T-virus here. There's always been that crossover with Resident Evil, so makes sense. That would make sense. Um, we'll now move on to we'll now move on to the final film. And boy, boy, what can I say about this? So throughout my horror journey. There have always been entries in a film series or particular films by established or favoured directors that have had a bad rap. And as such, that has meant that I haven't either easily been able to see that film straight away or I've avoided watching that film due to the general uh, reaction to it. And this, when I do eventually watch the film, can go a number of different ways. So there could be the positive way. For example, um, a year or so back, I finally got around to watching Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. It's Friday the 13th, part nine, but it was now under New Line Cinema. As mentioned on the Friday the 13th tier list, or whatever it was, show that we talked about Friday the 13th. I think we just talked about the films. Um, I'd The Friday the 13th films weren't really featured that heavily on TV. When I was younger, nowadays you can find most of them on Paramount Plus or you know Sky or wherever. Box set prices come and go. There's an incredible box set which isn't available in the UK. You can buy it on import from America, but I mean it is like a hundred, two hundred pounds. It's quite expensive, but it's a gorgeous box set featuring all of the films. But the box sets that we would get over here, uh, the cheaper box sets, would generally cover parts one to eight because they are the Paramount releases. 
Um, it was after that that it went to New Line Cinema. And they stopped using the Friday the 13th title as such. So, for that reason, I'd only, when I purchased a box set of Friday the 13th Part 1 to 8, I'd never seen um, Jason Goes to Hell. Wasn't really shown on TV, you know, it never really got the same sort of distribution or or re you know replays like on tv that some of the other films did um so a year or so back i thought i'm gonna spend two pounds 99 and rent it on amazon prime and i'm gonna watch it because i wanted to do it for the show for the ministry of horror so i could discuss it properly and i was pleasantly surprised it had a bad rap i mean partially the reason i hadn't watched it was because of the poor availability you know and all that and and secondly it was generally regarded as one of the worst ones i disagree yes jason isn't in isn't in it very much at all majority of it is his heart being eaten by different people and taken over them he appears at the start and he appears at the end that's it but I thought this was a, it was a, it was a good fun. It was a good fun horror film. It had some crazy performances in it. The story didn't make a lot of sense, but I I actually quite enjoyed it. Now the other end of the spectrum is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was an entry in the film series that for a long time I hadn't seen. Now Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't really get, to my knowledge, box sets. I've never seen a release which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. I saw the first one on tv quite young when it when it was it was again it was another band film and it was eventually re-released um i then a few years later saw on the sci-fi channel surprise surprise the second part which was quite tonally quite different took a bit to adjust to but it is a it's a good film it's quite darkly comic uh, and i then sought out on on dvd they had the unrated release of texas chainsaw massacre 3 because i think that had been partially banned or heavily cut previously that's all right. Um, and then, you know, there was the remake and the, 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 the prequel, so on and so forth, and then the sequels and various restarts. But for a long time, the one that I hadn't seen because it wasn't ever really shown on TV, it did get shown a bit, but I would always miss it. But I'd always heard it was terrible, and that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, featuring early performances of Rene Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. And I thought, I need to watch this. I was doing a show. I think it was the show that I was doing with Reanimate Her. Um, she's a great content creator. Check her out. I think she's on Twitch, but I know she's on YouTube. Um, and she was one of the early guests on the show. And I really appreciate that. Uh, appeared quite early on after doing shows with Danny Thompson and Peter Goddard. So I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4. And I completely understood why it was so lambasted. Because it's fucking awful. It's a really bad film. Even more so considering it had Kim Henkel involved, who worked on the original film with Toby Hooper. So, the long and short of that ramble is Survival of the Dead. I didn't see this at release, because I remember when it got released, and I remember it getting terrible reviews. And I thought, you know what, I wasn't really that fussed with Diary of the Dead. I didn't really think Land of the Dead was that great either. If this is getting shite reviews, alright, okay, fine, you know. It's not like if it was John Carpenter, who was a director I had more, much more affinity with. Like George Romero, I've enjoyed some of the films I've seen. Not seen all of his films, so I didn't feel that need to... Ah, I should watch it anyway and make my own mind up. You know, even with Carpenter, Ghost of Mars I didn't see for a long time because the first time I caught a bit of it, I thought, absolute gash. 
if you get past the really bad effects, it is actually quite decent. It's a product of its time, but it has got that carpenter tone to it. But Survivor of the Dead, I finally watched today. And this very much does fall into the banner of... Okay, I see why. <laughs> I see why this got such a bad rap. It's just really boring. It's really boring. The zombies pose really not much threat in this film at all. Then there's no moments of terror at all. Again, with Diary of the Dead, I can't comment if that is a case in that film because I can't remember it. I just remember it being a bit of a nothing film. But with Land of the Dead, there are moments of the zombie attacks which will make you jump, come out of nowhere. There are moments of terror, you know, and suspense in that film, even though it's not great. And of course, Day of the Dead has some great moments of tension, terror, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead, of course, synonymous of that, and Night of the Living Dead. But with this film, it felt like the zombie... The, the zombie carnage at the very end of the film for the final 10 minutes, if that, was, oh yeah, it's a zombie film, we should have that. Uh, there was, yes, there's no terror from the zombies. It's more of a human story, This these two warring Irish families on a little island on the outskirts of, um, it's called Plum Island on the outskirts of Delaware, it's in America where the zombie outbreak is occurring one family don't want to kill the zombies the other family are like well we need to kill them because they're dead and they'll just keep attacking us the one family want to keep the zombies alive basically consider that we need to learn to live with them there are loved ones we don't know if they're really dead they could just be sick yeah i guess i understand that but okay um and then there's also these national guardsmen who go AWOL, and basically they're they're in it for themselves. They go around robbing people. Um, they're, they're, they're acting's fine for some of those characters, but they come across this group of hunters, like redneck hunters, kill them. But then there's this random... He's oh, one of the worst characters in the film. This random kind of like teen emo cool kid and i say cool with the the um quotation marks obviously if you're listening you can't see that as a quotation marks um because you get it the the the, the trope of having the outsider edgy cool you know teen that's not a new trope at all but it's one of those character types where it either works you know you've either got a good actor you can pull it off or they just instantly become one of the most annoying characters in the film. And that's this kid. And he doesn't even have that much to do in it. But when he appears, he's just like, huh, I guess, you know, you must be, what, six foot two, six foot three? And the guy, this, he's, he's saying this to a sergeant. And the sergeant goes, hm, six foot last time I measured. And the kid goes, huh, when I'm fully grown, maybe I'll be taller than you. And just like, where the fuck is this conversation going? Well, they're talking about it. They call back to it later on. It's just like, don't care. This kid's a knob. I just, what, what's going on here? Um, 
so yeah, there's not really that much terror. They go to this island where there's this kind of thing going on. Yeah, it's just not a very good film. There's just not a lot to this. Um, the zombies are shit. Uh, I guess this is set kind of around the time of Diary of the Dead. Th th there is a crossover between this and Diary of the Dead. There's a moment when they go onto a bus with these students making a student film, and I believe that is a scene in Diary of the Dead. Don't think it's the same actors. I'm not entirely sure on that. Um, but the the National Guard stopping a bus, that is something that occurs in Diary of the Dead, and there's a little bit of a small scene in this as well. Um so it's yeah, it's some kind of set concurrently with that. I think six weeks or something elapse in time after that point. But yeah, if you've not seen Survival of the Dead, which looking at the live chat, Fran's not seen it, the Gruff's not seen it. I'd, I'd, yeah, I wouldn't search it out. I don't imagine you were thinking about searching it out, but I'd save yourself the time. It's crap. It was crap. Uh, but this was unfortunately the last film directed by Romero um who died in 2017 so maybe this film kind of put him off for a while and he thought let's just retire getting on a bit now and um yeah and, and ultimately passed in in 2017 but the impact he has had predominantly with his earlier features has been undeniable in the zombie genre and horror in general um I mean, one thing to mention, obviously it won't ever come to light now, is that in 2017, Romero announced that a new upcoming zombie horror film of his would be titled Twilight of the Dead. Twilight crossover, maybe? Um, he penned a film treatment with co-writer Paolo Zalati, depicting a conclusion to the series that explains the fate of the zombie protagonists from Land of the Dead and an ending where humanity has become virtually extinct. Romero had written the beginning of the script, but the project was stalled when Romero died of lung cancer later that year. It was announced in April 2021 that the film had been put back into development under the supervision of Suzanne Romero, with Zelati finishing the script with screenwriters Joe Netta and Robert L. Lucas. Suzanne told The Hollywood Reporter, This is the film he wanted to make, and while someone else will carry the torch as the director, it is very much a George A. Romero film. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, we didn't get Romero finishing it, and I don't know the, you know, the stage of where we're at with that script of Twilight of the Dead, or if it's gone into pre-production, or, or where we're at, but it's, it's currently marked as TBA, so I guess we can, we can have a little look-see and just see if there's any updates on that. Uh, da -da -da -da, nothing really since 2021 other than it being you know, in, in development uh, there's a why you should be excited for Twilight of the Dead from February 5th 2023 but it doesn't seem to be IMDB or, or anything uh, anything kind of showing up for that so wait and see I guess wait and see Frank the chat all, all humans dead so only zombies and vampires survive maybe quite possibly but what would what would they survive on? Now, one of the, the concepts in uh, survival of the dead is trying to train the zombies to eat animals so then they can coexist and live with humans. So that would be one thing, and I guess the same could work with vampires. I guess vampires in 
in pop culture, the the good vampires can live on on livestock. The ones that don't want to live on humans, maybe. Eh, I guess, I guess maybe. Um. Anyway, Christ, this is like a a bumper edition. This is like the old days of Ministry of Horror. This has gone long. Um. We're coming to the end of the Ministry of Horror show. Now, if you are watching this live, stick around. We will do the watch party. I will probably have a quick uh, a quick like intermission break um, so I can grab a drink, grab a snack, stretch the legs. Um, but if you're listening to this on platforms or whatever, we go live every other week on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Tezius, T-E-Z-Z-I-U-S. Give, uh, give my channel a follow come by i do watch parties i do occasionally do some gaming all good stuff there if you listen to this on audio platforms i'd really appreciate uh, a rating i'm not going to ask for a five star rating obviously that'd be very nice but just give it an honest rating or whatever share it around you know spread the word of ministry of horror uh, it really does kind of help but i have been pleased to see a huge jump um kind of for the first time um in the numbers in in the last week for the podcast i'm really pleased with that thank you very much or listening or watching this on VOD uh, over here on Twitch. So we'll be back in um, two weeks' time for another Ministry of Horror. Uh, keep checking the socials. Twitter is um, ministry underscore horror. I'll have updates there. If you're not already in the Discord, join the Discord. I don't have a link for the Discord, so you may be in the Discord already. I don't know. Ignore the drama. Um, <laughs> but I will. Or there's a Ministry of Horror sub discord channel in there and i will always generally in the week you know the days coming up to it chat about what is going to be the subject or what i'm going to be reviewing so you'll you'll get an idea on some form of social channel of what we're going to be talking about um now what i do need to do because i don't have any ending music is i do need to bring in some background music as I end the stream, so it doesn't feel quite as abrupt as it would if it was just me suddenly going, and that's the end of the show, bye. But anyway, as always, thank you very much for watching, thank you very much for listening to the Ministry of Horror, check back at another time, <laughs> and uh, this is where the audio is going to end, and I'm rabbiting on, I'll probably cut the audio before this, alright, thanks very much. <laughs>